בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוך השם, good to be here again, doing a weekly שיעור, there's a lot of interesting things that are new, על החידושים ברוך השם, that we'll bring today, that I know is going to, it's going to be a surprise to a lot of people, there's at least um, one atomic bomb that I think is a, uh, like Rabbi Mizrahi says, Shikhe, uh, there's one atomic bomb that uh, is necessary weapon that you need to use once in a while. You know, it's a uh, uh, atomic bomb of the truth, meaning um, that will bring to, uh, to, to, to you, Rabbi that are watching here, elsewhere, um, and as hard as sometimes the fight from the Yetzirah uh, is against the truth, um, such is life. That's the battle. That's the battle that you have to fight with. Um, you know, it's a, uh, when you are telling people nice sweet things and sweet stories in their ears, Okay, so uh, nice, sweet stories in their ears, and so on. Uh, you um, get people to enjoy the lecture, but you don't get them to change. You tell people that they're good. You make people feel good about where they're at. You tell people everything is going to be okay. You tell people that uh, Hashem loves you and gives them the impression that. They don't necessarily need to work on their relationships. Not their relationships with their kids, not their relationships with their spouse, and definitely not their relationships with God. Um, you give them the impression that everything's okay and whatever is not okay will be okay eventually. Uh, that, type of, uh, that type of speech destroys souls. It doesn't help them, it destroys them. And the reason why is because when people hear that they're okay, then they're encouraged to stay exactly the same and they're not encouraged to change. So even though people like to hear nice stories and nice things, um, if you're looking to change, sometimes change is not so nice. Uh, it's not necessarily meant to be mean, but nonetheless, it's not as pleasing to hear. No one likes to hear that they're wrong. No one. Mama Sechet Yoma 119 talks specifically about it is that a person could literally look himself in the mirror and see nothing wrong with himself. He sees everything wrong with everyone else and nothing wrong with himself. So Bezot Hashem will have a shul refuash lemat to Rabbanit Sarah Kachlon and also refuash lemat to Giovanni Gamaliel Reyes, David Ben Esria, Doris Bajora. לבנה בת שרה, שרה בת לבנה, עובדיה בן לבנה, and all of Am Yisrael בעזרת השם will have רפואה שלמה, רפואת הנפש, רפואת הגוף, and also אלישבע בת שרה, אלישבע שחיה בת שרה, also have רפואה שלמה בעזרת השם, רפואת הנפש, רפואת הגוף. So today we'll talk about the next משנה in the series that we have, ברוך השם. And uh, today we're up to number 87, but today we're going to see some things in the parasha 
that uh, perhaps you've never seen before. And not necessarily you didn't read it. You read it. If you read the weekly parasha, you read it. But the parasha has so much happening in it with the plagues that there's a lot of small details. There's a lot of small details within the parasha that it's very easy to miss. Uh, I can tell you personally, I just got it this year. After reading the, the, the weekly parasha every year for some time now, um, and reading it several times and so on, and midrashim and so on and so on and so forth, and however many times Hashem gave me the merit to study it, I only had the chidush this week. Hmm. I only had the chidush this week. Apparently this week was the time to get this chidush. It wasn't last year, the year before, the year before, the year before, or the year before, but it was now. Apparently, it's time for it to come out. So, the Mishnah in Avot begins as follows. Asara Dorot Minoach Vad Abraham Leodia Kama Erech Apayim Lefanav Shekol Adorot Ayumach Isin Uvain Ad Sheba Avraham Avinu Vikibel Sechal Kulam so Mishnah in Avot 5.3, the fifth uh, chapter, the third Mishnah, continues with the tens, the series of tens that this uh, we already had a couple before, one last week with the ten utterances that Hashem created the world, one last night with the ten generations from Adam Rishon until Noah, and now we have the next one in the list, which is the ten generations from Noah to Avram. So we had ten from Adam Rishon to, to Noah. And now it's ten from Noah to Avram. Avram was born in the year 1948 from creation. 1948 from creation. Which is interesting. It's the same year in the Christian calendar that uh, modern Israel was founded also. Interesting. Interesting. How Hashem runs the world. Anyone that thinks that such a thing is a coincidence is simply a fool. But the point is, is that you have Am Yisrael began technically with Avraham Avinu. And modern day Israel, the generation of the Mashiach also began 1948. Just different calendar. But here, we have a little bit of a different perspective. Last night we learned... The ten generations from Adam Alishon until Noah showed Hashem's patience because ultimately a person needs to understand that the fact that Hashem doesn't punish doesn't mean that He's forgiving. Doesn't mean He's forgiving you. Doesn't mean that He's just letting it go. Doesn't mean that He forgot it. He's just patient and eventually He gives you time to do tshuva, but eventually He has to punish. Today is different. Today it says the ten generations from Noah to Avraham showed also patience, showed also Hashem's patience, but why? All of these generations also angered him. They also angered Hashem increasingly. Until our forefather Avraham came and received the reward for all of them. So here we have similar 90%, and then the last 10% changes the entire picture. Ten generations, same. Ten generations of, of people that make Hashem angry, same. Someone came along, same. Noah in one case, Avram in his case. But yesterday, the, the, Mishnah, the second Mishnah we had, 
to show that punishment eventually comes, today, Avram received the reward. So it's Pamash, two different corners. So, first off, let's see who the generations are. And Bezot Hashem, Nasev and Atzliach will go on into other issues as well to connect it. Now, the ten generations from uh, Noah until uh, Avram are as follows. First, it was Shem. Shem was one of the three sons of Noah. That's where all of Amisa comes from. Uh, Al Pachshad. Shelach, Evel, uh, Evel is the yeshiva, name of the yeshiva, and the person that uh, Yaakov Avinu learned, in yeshivat Shem and Evel. Uh, it was Shem's yeshiva and Evel as well. Peleg, Reu, Serug, Nachor, Terach, which is Avram Avinu's father, and Avram, and Avram. Now, simply put, it says that all of these generations, generation after generation, continued to anger Hashem. Meaning that despite Hashem destroying the world, literally 1650 years into creation, only 300 years later approximately, 350 years later, they built a Tower of Babel. Why? Specifically to fight God. No, no more, no less. Not just because they wanted a high tower, maybe they wanted to sell expensive real estate. No, no, no. They wanted to go fight God. Their rationale told them, listen, we're going to build a tower because God apparently destroyed the world 1,600 years after he created it. So maybe that's what he does every 1,600 years. So if we start building a tower now, the next time he wants to destroy, we're going to be ready for him. This is Mamash, the Yetzirah, Malach HaMavit, and Satan all in the same thing. It goes in people's head and it gives them craziness in their heads. But nonetheless, unlike the generation of Noah that were sinners, the generation of the Tower of Babel were also sinners, but Hashem did not destroy them. He just changed the language until that moment, so the first 1900 years approximately of creation. There was only a single language, which was Hebrew. There's no other languages. And the Tower of Babel, Babel meaning comes from the root Bilbul. Bilbul means confusion. Uh, where Hashem confused them amongst each other. How, why? He gave them different languages. 70 different languages were created in an instant. And now they weren't able to, to communicate. Why did he do so? He did it because so long as they had unity, even though that unity was all against Hashem, it carried weight in the eyes of Hashem. And he, did, they, he didn't want to destroy them. That's how important unity is. So even if you're going against Hashem with that unity, Hashem will still give you merit for it. That's how much Hashem loves unity. But at the same token, they made Hashem angry. They made Hashem angry. And the question is, does Hashem get angry the same way that we do? So there's a very interesting chidush that the Sfat Emet, one of the sages, explains as far as the notion of anger here, it's very different than you'd ever think. You would think, that technically, somebody that's, let's say, for example, Mechalel Shabbat, someone that's a Machtia Rabbi, makes other people sin, either because they're immodest, or because they have a, uh, a business that makes other people sin, and so on and so forth. You would think that just because you're going against Hashem, that makes Hashem angry. 
because you're going against him. That's human logic. It's human logic. You ask your wife for dinner, and she said, make it for yourself. Typically, no one will get upset about such a thing. How upset? Depends on you and your midot. But nonetheless, it's not going to make you happy. You uh, spent a lot of money on a certain tool that you need for your business or for whatever, and it cost you a lot of money and a lot of effort, and you had to get it shipped from China, and it took three months to get here, and it was this and it was that, and it's special order, and it had engravements on it with your name and everything is this, and as soon as you got it, three days into it, your kids took it, played with it, and broke it. Make you upset. Your level of how upset you are, again, depends on your midot and how much Musa you learn. But nonetheless, it's not going to make you happy. That's still human logic. The Sfat Emet gives a chidush that's explosive. He says, Hashem does not, Hashem says, Machshevotai lo machshevotichem. I don't have thoughts like you. you thinking that you do this and now you get upset because you did it. No, you're missing the point. The Sfat Emet says the following. Hashem Itbach is the epitome of goodness. Always seeking to bestow benefits upon people. He always wants to give good. The only reason he created, he created the world is to give good. How do you define good? Good is something that wants to give good, wants to create good. Everyone thinks they're good. How do you know if you're good? Are you creating any good? Is all the good that you're creating for yourself? Then that's not good, that's just selfish. Good meaning you're creating good for others. Tov v'metiv. Metiv means creating good. So Hashem was perfect on His own, but because of His nature of being good, He wanted to create good, to bestow good on others, and not just keep all the joy for Himself in essence. So the Sfat Ahmed says He's the epitome of goodness. He always seeks to bestow benefits and good amongst others. But His wisdom... His divine wisdom, His endless wisdom, His infinite wisdom, decreed that man must earn and deserve that good. Meaning you cannot give good for no reason. Because giving good for no reason and spoiling someone is destroying them. Because if they don't deserve it and you give it to them, like in this generation they give these participation trophies, you just participate and therefore you feel like a winner. This is creating a generation of losers. And I know that even the previous generation already have many of those same loser mentality type of people. We would have people come to my office looking for a job, but they weren't willing to start at the bottom. They wanted to start at the top. They want to start already making a million dollars. They have no experience. They have no knowledge. They have no understanding whatsoever. But they want, to, want you to give them, yeah, yeah, I want to trade. Give me $50 million to trade. I'll, I'll figure it out. Like, like the money grows on trees. You tell them, no, no. You have to you know, build your business, get some clients, get some this, learn your rope. No, no. A generation doesn't want to do that. Why? Because their whole life or however many years... Their parents just gave them whatever they want. Eh, 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 okay, here's a car. Eh, 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 okay, here's a house. Eh, 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 here's this, here's this. Just shut up and I'll give you whatever you want. Just, just be quiet, I'll give you whatever you want. This is bad. Because even though the parent means well, 
In reality, they're destroying them. Because the person never understands what it means to earn. Once they understand what it means to earn, even if it's earning a lollipop, they appreciate it more. I can tell you that the first time I made a thousand dollars for a month in the investment business, first few years I've made virtually nothing, just survived barely with two jobs. Then I didn't make any money at all because I started the new place and somebody, somebody um, conned me. Long story short, I got to literally poverty. So for six months, I made literally zero. I had a, you know, whatever I made, I had to pay in bills to the office, leaving me with nothing. So for six months, I'm going home with nothing. Finally, after six months, in March of 2002, I made my first thousand dollars that I was able to take home, finally. I made more, but after paying the office bills and everything, I was finally able to take off a thousand dollars. To me, that thousand dollars, I will never forget it. That thousand dollars might as well have been a billion. That thousand dollars was, because you have to imagine, I just worked three and a half years for that thousand dollars. It wasn't a month. It wasn't a day. It was three and a half years for that thousand dollars that finally goes in my pocket. Even though when I was 17, I was already making a hundred thousand dollars a year before this job that I had and and changed careers and so on. I I knew what money was. But here I worked three and a half years for the first thousand dollars. To me, it was like, might as well have been a billion dollars. Now, you fast forward a couple of years in... uh, I don't know, I think sometime in 2003, I made in one month 600,000. And then you fast forward another few years, I made one month 1.6 million. I mean, start absurd amount of money. That money, that million dollars plus, was meaningless in comparison to the thousand dollars. Meaningless. Why? Things changed. Things changed. So earning something with all of your might and all of your strength and all of your effort has, has a special meaning to it. Both a psychological, a spiritual, a sentimental value. So Hashem Barach, the creator of all creation says, in order for him to give good, you must earn and deserve it. He can't just give it to you just because you worked hard doesn't mean you deserve a million dollars. You may have earned a living, you may have earned something, but it doesn't mean you deserve the moon. Earn and deserve. But the chidush is this. Because he's constantly looking for ways to give you good. All he wants to do, all he created you for is to give you good. All he wants is to give you good. That means that every time we sin... All we're doing is we're holding him back from giving us what he wants to give us. So instead of giving us good that he created us only to give us good, he now has to give us bad. Why? That's the bill. That's the consequence. For holding him back, for frustrating in essence, for frustrating the godly shower that he wants to give you. What is it like? It's like someone prepared a huge event. 
I mean, an event like you would never. I mean, people spend fifty thousand dollars on bat mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs, and some people spend two hundred thousand dollars on them. Imagine somebody spent five million dollars, but not for a bar mitzvah for five hundred or five thousand people, just for you. They spent five million dollars. They got the best chefs. They got the best this. They got the best that. They got chandeliers. They got stars coming out from the sky. They're coming to visit you. Angels are coming. Chachamim are coming. I mean, you're on the stage. The greatest things you could ever imagine. Everything is just for you. Food, anything you've ever liked, they found out in your entire life that you found out they liked, they put it there with the best chef in the world made that specific dish. There's 500 chefs. In the kitchen, each one just came to make you one tiny little dish that you liked when you were three years old. You said, I like it, Ima. So they found out already. There's so much research to find out what you liked at three years old. They have a chef that made it the best one. And at four years old, and it's five years old, and six years old, and so on and so forth. The whole party's for you. And they got the music, every music you've ever liked. As long as it's kosher, they're bringing it too. And what happens? They spent all the money. They brought the flowers, they put the trees, they put this, they put this. Everything is wonderful. It's set. It's on a, a Tuesday at 9 p.m. You call at 8.45. It's like, yeah, um, I can't make it tonight. I'm, uh, I'm kind of busy. I'm going to watch the game. I'm going to watch the game at home. I'm going to watch the game. I got a game. I got a football game. I'm going to watch what do you mean? We just prepared a $5 million party just for you. There's no other guests. It's just you. Yeah, 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 but I'm, gonna, I'm tired. I'm tired. Uh, let's just do it another time. That's what it's like. When a person sins against the Shemit Barach, that is the frustration that the Sfat Emet is saying they're creating. All he wanted to do is give you good and all you're doing is frustrating him and, and making it impossible for him to do. So, the ten generations between Adam Rishon and Noach frustrated Hashem. He was not able to give them good. The ten generations from Noach to Avraham did the very same thing. But the difference here is that finally we arrive at Avraham Avinu and it says Avraham Avinu came and he received the reward for all of them. He received the reward for all of them. So we learn from the Sfarim HaKtoshim that Avraham and Sarai Menu were the ultimate Kiruv team. Were the first Kiruv team and the best Kiruv team that ever existed. They converted everyone. And that's why in the Sefer uh, Bereshit, Genesis chapter 12, verse 5, it specifically says that Avram and uh, Sarah traveled, they moved with what? The souls that they, meaning Avram and Sarah, made in Haran. Meaning they left Haran, but they brought all the souls with them. What souls? All the people they got into Tshuva. All the people they converted from idolatry to monotheism. All of those souls that they created came with them. So there's a few things to say about this. First and foremost, that the Machzor Vitri and Meiri say that this is one of the main sources 
of why anyone who doesn't do Kiruv is a fool. Anyone who doesn't contribute the main staka money that they have, main ma'asel money that they have, on Kiruv is simply just missing out on the best mitzvah in the world. And the reason why is because you have to, in mitzvot, you have to look at them like investments. When you're going to invest in a piece of property, you're not going to invest in a piece of property that's in the middle of the desert and there's not going to be any tenants ever. Maybe once a year there's going to be a tenant. What are you going to invest in? You invest in a piece of property that's going to be most amount of tenants, most amount of business coming out of it. You're not going to invest in a stock of a company that just makes Q-tips and sells it to hotel chains and reports earnings once every 10 years. Who knows what they're going to do after 10 years? What are you going to do? You're going to report to a company that's there's more going on. They're innovative. They're doing something new. They're reporting things more frequently. Every few months, you know what's going on. There's uh, brilliant people at the top. And so on and so forth. Why? You want to make more money. You know that if it's not doing well, you change. But what do people do? People take the bulk of their money and instead of donating to things that are going to be similar to their investments, investments they're very good at. People know how to invest. People know how to invest in real estate, in buildings, in houses, in projects, in, uh, you know, in all types of fields, all types of farms, all types of anything that you can imagine. People have figured out a way to make money out of anything. Stock market, I mean, I don't know what's going on, but all people keep telling me it's at an all-time high. People have found a way to make money out of the stock market without even doing anything. But when it comes to mitzvot, people are clueless. Simply clueless. Why? They take their main, whatever tzedakah money they're going to give, which is already a problem to begin with, because people to get tzedakah out of them is like seriously like taking a, uh, it's, like, it's easy to take blood out of them without a needle. But anyway, we don't go collecting money. I just know that I see, I see what, what people do. Main stock of money, they leave. Oh, I'm going to buy an aliyah at the Bet Knesset on Yom Kippur once a year. I'm going to go spend 10, 20, 30, 50, 100,000 dollars to buy aliyah at the Bet Knesset, get pleasure and kavod for 20 minutes or not even five minutes. I'm going to spend 10, 20,000 dollars and get an aliyah on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. Or better yet, I'm going to buy a Sefer Torah for 50, 100,000 dollars. Or if you want to get a cheap one for 25, 30,000 dollars. I spent twenty five, thirty thousand dollars. Get a sefer Torah. They use three times a week, but in reality, since the Bekneset already has five of them, maybe they're going to use it once every four months. Maybe. So that means you're going to get a mitzvah once every four months. That means the aliyah that you're getting, you're going to get a mitzvah during the aliyah. Or yeah, I'm going to sponsor Hanukkah party. Okay, sponsor Hanukkah. One day mitzvah. Nothing happened. Some of the people that came, they didn't even do brachot on one day eating. Some of the kosher someone brought is not even kosher. It wasn't exactly a, a mitzvah opportunity. But people will easily spend ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars sponsoring some Hanukkah party. You tell a guy, listen, you know that Sefer Torah? Yeah. Someone needs to read it. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Chazan. No, no, I don't mean that. I mean, this Sefer Torah is for Jews. Problem is, we have a lot of Sifret Torah. We don't have a lot of Jews, though. Sifret Torah we have. Jews we don't have. Why? All the Jews, unfortunately, don't know what it means to have a Sefer Torah. If 20 million Jews, only 2, 3 million of them keep Shabbat. We have a problem. Instead of saving Sefer Torah, save the living Sefer Torah. Save the Jew. 
Why should I do that? The difference is, if you buy a Sefer Torah, $50,000. If you donate $50,000 to some big Knesset, it's great, Chalaku Baruch. But it's not the same type of investment. Why? You get one time, two times, three times, five times mitzvah. You get somebody to actually do tshuva, anyone, doesn't make a difference. Get somebody to do tshuva, you get somebody to convert and become a, 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 a ger tzedek. Every single mitzvah that that person ever does or is responsible for, meaning his wife's mitzvot, his children's mitzvot, go into your account too. So the Machzor Bitrin Meiri says, what does it mean that Avraham Avinu kibel schar kulam, that Avraham Avinu received the reward for all of them, every single person that converted, he also got the mitzvah for them too. Meaning, they did mitzvot. They didn't just believe in God and they finished and they go back home. They go back to idol worship. They continue making mitzvot. You want to eat, you have to become the mazon. You want to do this, you want to do this. Every time they did mitzvot, every single mitzvah they did goes to him. Goes to them and to him. Because the mitzvah is like fire. If you take a candle and you want to light a second candle, you take the first candle with the fire, you light the second candle with no fire, now you have two fires and nothing changed. The first candle did not lower his fire. It's just now there's two fires. That's a mitzvah, Rabotai. That's a mitzvah. So, here we see that Avraham and Sarah got the ultimate reward. They got the mitzvot for everyone. The Sefer Musa goes even further. It says, reason why they got such a huge reward is because of the level of difficulty. They lived in a generation full of wicked idol worshippers. The fact that they did tshuva and they did what they did as far as become so righteous during that, that such a time, that's what gave them such a big reward. They got the reward for all of the previous generations before them that the reward existed. When it says, in the book of Isaiah, all of Israel have a, a share of the world to come. That means that each time Hashem decided to create someone, He designated a certain place for them in Olam Abba. Now, if that person died on Mechalel Shabbat, if that person died lending money people, to people with interest, if that person made certain sins that he lost their Allah Shalom. That share of Allah still exists. It has to go to somebody. So that's why the verse in Isaiah says, All of Israel has a share of the world to come. As it says in the book of Isaiah, chapter 60, verse 21, And your people are all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. A branch of my plantings, my handiwork, in which to take pride. Meaning, where does this share go? It goes to the righteous. It goes to the righteous. So Avraham Avinu was the first of its kind. Hashem allowed the world to continue existing despite the many, many sins. Because Hashem knew that Avraham and Sarah will come to the world and it was worth it for him to create the world just for them. But now all of this share of the world to come that existed for a couple thousand years had to go somewhere. Give it all to Avraham Avinu. 
That Sefer HaMusar says, that's the significance of someone that does tshuva when they're surrounded by wicked people. You know, people always tell me, yeah, listen, it's hard for me to do tshuva because all my friends are such, my family is such, my, I grew up as such, I know such, and da, 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 all the excuses in the world of why not, why not, why not. Sefer HaMusar says, that's exactly the reason why you should do mitzvot. Why? Someone has to take their ulama ba. If they're not going to get it themselves, somebody has to do it. Now, how does this work exactly, Be'emet? Each time, you did tshuva ba'uch Hashem. Now, you're not going to be uh, selfish. You're going to share the knowledge. You want to help people. You love them. You want to help them. You're not one of these reshaim that wants to keep everything to themselves. Because that's what happens is you end up being like them. So, you did tshuva. You want to help other people do tshuva. So you say, okay, listen, come to a lecture. They don't want to come. Okay, listen, here's a uh, CD. They throw out the CD or they don't listen to the CD. Okay, here's a link. Watch this lecture. They don't watch the lecture. You send them another one, another one, another one. Then you come to, you know, you invite them to your house. And you try a few times. And it just simply doesn't work. They just don't want to do tshuva. And eventually it gets to a, such a point, they make such big sins, Hashem Elachem, that Hashem does what the, what the Rambam says is the worst possible punishment in this world, which is He decides to pay them the reward in this world and eliminate them. Just like it says in Parashat Vayitchanan, the last three verses. Meshalem el el panav la'avido pays His enemies to their face to destroy them. Rambam says the worst punishment. Why? You can't do tshuva. Finish. Shem. Patience ran out. So now, they still have a share of the world to come that was created for them. But they, didn't, they don't deserve it and they didn't earn it. What is Hashem going to do with it? Ah! You wanted to get them to do tshuva. They didn't do it. There's a rule in the Torah. There's a rule in the Torah which is if you try to do mitzvah, but you're anus, meaning it's you weren't able to achieve this mitzvah because it's beyond your control. In Shemaim, they judge you as if you fulfilled the mitzvah in a perfect way. Meaning, if let's say, for example, you wanted to go and you wanted to, uh, let's say, uh, go to Beknesset. Go to Beknesset tomorrow morning, net, six o'clock in the morning. You were excited, you went to sleep. You put the alarm and another alarm and alarm to wake up the alarm because the first alarm went to sleep and the one, da, 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 da. Finally, you woke up in the morning. You got the suit ready. You got the dish. You're excited. You know, you still got cobwebs in your eyes. No matter. You're going out. You don't even know right or left, but you're going to Beknesset because you're excited to go pray to Hashem. Now, Beknesset is five, ten, you know, ten minutes drive, let's say, from your house. Ten minutes drive is kind of far walk. On the way to Beknesset, you get a flat tire. And you can't just abandon the car and walk. Stopping traffic. You're going to make it to the second minyan at 8 o'clock. But you wanted to go to 6. In Shemayim it says, you woke up for 6, the flat tire is beyond your control. That's from Shemayim. You get a mitzvah as if you woke up at 6. You went to the mitzvah at 6. So, such things are with every, such a rule is with every mitzvah. 
Meaning you tried making somebody do tshuva. You tried once. You genuinely tried. Now you tried, gave him a CD and good luck and uh, you never, never talked to him again. You tried a few times with the guy and he didn't do it. Shem says, I have to give the share to somebody. Oh, Betzalel, here you go. Here you go, is another Olaba. Shtabach Shem So, Sefer Musa says, if you're surrounded by wicked people, that's exactly why you should do tshuva. Why? Number one. You can inherit their Olam Abba if they don't do tshuva, or you can inherit a bigger Olam Abba even if you get them to do tshuva. Either way you win. Either way you win. Now, the Rambam, Alaba Shalom, in Morei Nevuchim, Guide for the Perplexed, 350, asks a very interesting question. Why does Hashem include all of these stories in the Torah. I mean, after all, really, the Torah is an instruction book of how to follow what a God wants to do. It's a manual. How to obey Him, how to praise Him, how to serve Him, when to pray, when to eat, what to eat, what to say before you eat, what to say after you eat, what to do in the morning, what to do in the afternoon. Who to marry, who not to marry, who to befriend, who to not to befriend. And so on and so is an enormous amount of rules. Thousands and thousands of intricate little details. Every single rule itself has thousands of details. If you just simply look at the halachot of making tefillin, it's a thousand halachot. Tefillin is one halacha. But the halachot to make the tefillin is a thousand. So Rambam says, listen, in the end, it's instructions. So what's the stories for? Of course anyone that thinks that the Torah is a history book, the Zohar Kadosh says they lose, they lose their right to live. Because that's the last thing in the world it is. Yeah. On the other hand, we still have stories. What do you do with them? And the Rambam gives you a genius answer. He says it's to teach us the ways of God is to teach us his midot, his character traits. Because you're not going to meet God in the middle of the street. You're not going to see him. He doesn't have an image. He doesn't have the likeness of an image. For so anyone who even thinks of an image of God is for making a sin. This is one of the principal sins of Christianity and Catholicism and all of these religions that have an image of God. This is why even if, let's say, for example, some people make, they, want, they mean well. They want to make drawings. They want to make drawings, you know, paintings, and there's like a hand coming out of the sky. You're not allowed. God doesn't have a hand. Or they have this famous painting where uh, there's... Some guy that they say is God was touching Adam. I think Michelangelo made it or some other guy made it. And they say, oh, this is God. Or even worse, you have this uh, painting that was uh, recently sold for $450 million. $450 million. And they claim it's J.C. Penney. They claim it's Jesus uh, that uh, is in the painting that Michelangelo painted. Now... What's the amazing thing about it? The only thing that's amazing about that painting 
The fact that there's fools in the world is not amazing because if foolishness was a stock, the price would be infinity. There's no shortage of fools. There's always been, there always will be. There's new fools born every day. What's so amazing about that picture that was sold for $450 million? What's so amazing? If you actually watch my Torah and Science, part one, part one, I think it's part one, maybe part two. Touch Torah and Science. I talk about, I mention a specific Gemara in Masechet Avodazara. And it says, how did Am Yisrael know about planet Earth before Columbus? How do we have a proof? What's the proof? In the Gemara Masechet Abu Dazara, we say you're not allowed to have a sculpture or even a picture of any person holding a ball. Why? Because that, in essence, represents a person that, in essence, is being visualized as if he's holding the world, as if he's God. It's a form of idolatry. That painting that was sold for $450 million is exactly that. It's J.C. Penny holding a crystal ball. It's exactly what God said not to do. Don't be surprised if the new owner dies within the next year. Don't be surprised. I'm dead serious. Don't be surprised if he dies within the next year. Don't be surprised. It's mamash exactly what God said not to do. Exactly. Like mamash. It's like they wrote instructions of Gemara. They violated every single, every single detail of it. Every single detail of it. Craziness. Or if they live a really, really long life and they just have Gainom forever. It's, it's Either way, no good. The point is, is that the Rambam says, why do we have these stories then? Why do we have these stories? He says, in order for you to learn the ways of God. If you see God acting a certain way, then you can bet on it that he's going to do it again. Meaning, if you see him rewarding the righteous, you can bet on it, he'll continue rewarding the righteous. If you see him punishing the wicked, you can bet on it that he's going to continue punishing the wicked. How long? Forever. Why? God doesn't change. He's not a human being that changes his mind every week. So, when a person has such an understanding of the ways of God, it's easier. Life becomes easier to fulfill the mitzvot. Why? You have yourself an instruction set. You can use every single part of it of knowing what to do and already in essence know what the outcome is. Maybe the same outcome is not going to happen to you as quickly as it happened in the book, but it will happen indeed. Someone did good, they got good, you'll get good. When? That's Hashem's business. Nonetheless, they got, you saw they got good, God gave them good for what they did, you did the same thing, you'll get good. So it's not only that you have the lotto ticket, you have the winning numbers too. All you have to do is pick it up from the store. It's very simple. Now, There are certain things that are mitzvah killers, certain character traits that are mitzvah killers, that are blessing killers. One of them is being stingy. 
One of them is being stingy. Now the Peleoetz, Abiyadez Papo, says that it's better that you stick to an Amaaletz, an ignorant person, that has a generous heart. And good overall good midot, instead of going with a Talmit Chacham, that's cheap, that's stingy. Now the Gemara says a lot of really horrible things about people that are ignorant. Why? It says, listen, if he's ignorant, he's no different than the cow. In fact, some, some of the Chachamim says, if he's ignorant, he doesn't know to why, he's not allowed to eat cows. Why? The cow's better than him. They're very, very, uh, they don't fool around. They're not uh, politically correct. Very, very harsh against ignorant people. Not allowed to be ignorant. But Rabbi Eliezer Papo says, if he's ignorant, but he's generous, it's better you're with him than with a Talmit Chacham. Someone knows a lot of Torah, but he's stingy. Why? Why is it so bad to be with somebody that's stingy? He says, because the person that's ignorant, but has good midot, is, 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 is generous, at least you know, all he's missing is knowledge. But in general, he's spiritually healthy. He's a healthy person. The Talmud Chacham, that's stingy, you know for sure, he's spiritually sick. He's a sick person. Yeah, but he has Torah. Exactly. The fact that he has Torah and it still didn't cure him makes him sicker than what we thought initially. The fact that he has Torah and he's still stingy makes him sicker than what we thought originally. So this is one of those mamash mitzvah killers. To, 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 the, the, the Chachamim and the Torah itself frowns upon it horribly. It's one of the stories is actually a rich guy was so stingy. Mamash, a real story. He was so stingy, so cheap, that one day his wife, who had to suffer living with this guy, hears him yelling and screaming in the room. Peeks in the room, she's screaming, screaming. She doesn't see who he's screaming at. So much yelling. Oh, you thief! You thief! You liar! You thief! Oh, somebody stole him. She calls the cops. Woo, 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 woo. The cops show up, breaking down. Oh, no, who's the thief? In that room, in that room, he's stealing from my husband. They open the door. They see him looking in the mirror. You thief! You liar! You thief! You li- Sir, who? Who's thief? Who's a liar? It's my mouth. He doesn't stop eating and spending my money. And he doesn't want to stop eating. Okay, sir, you're right. You're under arrest. You throw him in jail. Shows up to the judge. You guys are laughing. It's a true story. The judge is a chacham. The judge is a chamit chacham. Knows what he's talking about. He says, yeah, sir, what happened? He goes, listen, your honor, my mouth is a thief. It won't stop eating. It won't stop spending my money. Look at me, I work so hard to make my money and this mouth won't stop spending it. And the judge says, you're right. I'm going to designate one of my personal best guards, best policemen, to make sure this mouth never steals from you again. Thank you, Your Honor. 
So a few hours pay, he releases him, he goes back home. He wants to, you know, he wants to go get something to eat. Oh, do, 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 do. Hey, don't steal now. What do you mean? I need to, hey, we don't give anything to the thieves. We don't give any life to the thieves. One day passes, no food, no drink, no water, no nothing. Second day passes, he goes, oh, I'm hungry. Yeah, it's steal, it's thief. We can't feed the thieves. We can't give them encouragement. We can't let them continue stealing. After the third day, he goes, ah, I'm dying, I'm dying, please help me. He goes, okay, let's go back to the judge. The judge says, listen, we cannot give any life to thieves. So the only way you're going to be allowed to eat, drink, or anything is if you admit that your mouth is not a thief. Someone's nature can get to such a horrible stage that literally they can think of their own family as thieves. They look at their wives, why are you spending all my money? Why do you think you got money from God? What, for, for your IRA account? People that are stingy on their wives, people that are stingy on their kids, they're so focused on you know, saving for the future. Who knows if you're going to live to see it? Oh, no, no, I'm saving for my retirement. I'm, you know, I'm 30 years old. I have to save. I have 30 years to save. Who knows if you're going to survive this week? This, forget this year or 30 years. This week. Who says? Who gave you a guarantee? Can anyone here tell me, I know for sure I'm going to survive this week. For sure. I know I have a guarantee. I have a letter signed by God. He said, I'm surviving this week. Anyone can say it in the world? They survived this week? Every day we survive is mamash a miracle. Every week is a miracle. You're saving for 30 years from now. For what? Kids need to go to yeshiva. No, no, we can't afford it. What do you mean you can't afford it? You have $30,000 in the bank. Why can't you afford yeshiva? What's wrong with you? Why, why can't you afford yeshiva? No, we need that for a rainy day. Okay, rainy day arrived. Yeshiva arrived. What do you mean rainy day? What are the rainy day? No, retirement. Who knows if you can survive? Would you? So that's that's the stinginess is 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 not only a mitzvah killer; it's a life killer, a marriage killer. The chachamim noticed something extraordinary in the Zohar Kadosh Parashat Vayechi, right at the end of Sefer Bereshit. Yaakov gives the blessings to his sons. And it starts off as an uh, order. Uven, Shimon, Levi. But then, he blesses Vulun before Yisachal. When technically it's supposed to be the opposite. Yisachal was older, supposed to get the blessing before Zvulun. So what's the explanation? Explanation is that they had the Yisachal and Zvulun deal where one studied and the other one paid for it. So Zohar Kadosh says something extraordinary. He says Zvulun was named first even though he was younger. He was named first. The one that studied was named second. You would think it's the opposite. It's not. Zvulun got named first. He got the blessing first. Why? Because Zvulun was merited to take food out of his own mouth to give to Yisachar. It's not that he just gave her money, hey, go ahead, I'm going to work, I make $10,000 a month, 5000 to you, 5000 to me. 
That's what people think Yisachar and Zvulun is today. The people have a warped version of what Yisachar and Zvulun is. There's some people that go to poor people, poor Avrechim, uh, they give them a hundred bucks, like, oh, we have Yisachar and Zvulun now. What am I going to do with a hundred dollars? I can't buy groceries with a hundred dollars. What am I going to do with a hundred? No, we have Yisachar and Zvulun. Oh, half your study goes to me. Unfortunately, some of these Avrechim, they're so, they're so poor that they don't do anything. Okay, fine, you have half my study for a hundred bucks. But listen, it's, it's, it's a joke though. In Shemaim, they laugh at it. In Shemaim, they laugh at it. Oh, there's another guy who says, no, no, I'm, uh, you know, I have a deal with all these uh, Avrechim. I give him 500 bucks a month or 600 bucks a month and they have Yisachar and Zvulun. I get half their studying. That's not Yisachar and Zvulun. You don't get half their studying for 500 dollars a month. Okay, 500 dollars a month is good. It's, but it's not Yisachar and Zvulun. Why? You can't get half of their, bar- half of their learning the merits of all their learning, half their mitzvot for their learning, when you're not paying for half of their expenses. $500 is not paying half of anybody's expenses. Not here, not in Israel, not anywhere. So if people try to like beat the system constantly. So what's the original Issachar and Zvulun? Why did Zvulun get... A blessing first before Issachar, even though he's the one that's paying for it. He says because the way that they looked at it, the way that it should be looked at, is that Zvulun literally would give him food, would give Issachar, the learner, he would give him food before himself. Meaning, if there's, let's say, $10,000 expected, it wasn't once I get $10,000, I'm going to cut it in half. I take five, you take five. No, no, no. The first five goes to you, the learner, and Bezad Hashem, I'll get my five. That's the real Yisachar Zvulun. You don't necessarily have to do it that way, but the point is, is that it's supposed to be 50-50. It's not supposed to be uh, just you give 500 bucks and you, uh, you have a... Uh, it's as if you studied for the whole month. It's not. But the point here, we see that the Sfarim HaKadoshim are quite different than our mindsets. Very, very different than our mindsets. Now, in Parashat Shavua, we're also going to see something that's very, very different than our mindsets. Very, very different. How different from our mindsets? Worlds apart. Worlds apart. In Parashat Vayera, Vayera, you have extraordinary miracles. I mean, you're so focused on the miracles. I mean, I've done at least, I've recorded at least a few, two, maybe three times this Parashat Shavua. And every single time I did a shiur, it was two, three hours. What was it about? What could we learn from the plagues? The plagues of Hashem. Put on Mitzrayim. Destroyed the biggest civilization in the world. Made them from something to nothing. There's a lot to learn here. The measure for measure. How Hashem's ways. How He does what He does. Why He does what He does. You see in the beginning of the parasha, He comes to Moshe Rabbeinu, He says, I appear to Avraham, Yitzhak and Yaakov as El Shaddai. But with my name, Hashem, I did not myself, make myself known to them. 
Meaning, to Avraham Yitzhak and Yaakov, I appear to him as me, but I didn't make the miracles that I'm making for you. You are next level. You're seeing things even the Avot HaKadoshim didn't see. What are, you, what are you complaining about, Moshe? Look how much you're going to see. You're seeing something no one's ever seen before and no one will ever see after. I came to them as one character of myself, one version of myself, but nonetheless, you're seeing something even clearer. The Shmona Prakim by the Rambam says, what's the difference between all the prophets and Moshe Rabbeinu? What's the difference between all the prophets? It says that there's different levels of prophecy. Ezekiel had a certain type of prophecy about the end of days, but if you look at his prophecy versus Isaiah, it's very, very different. Why? Because even though they're both talking about the Betamikdash, the end of days, and so on and so forth, Isaiah's explanation is much easier to understand than Ezekiel. Why? His prophecy was higher level. So what does it mean, higher level prophecy? What does it mean? It means that each time one of the Nevi'im, one of the people, they were flesh and blood, like you and me. They weren't uh, something different. They weren't a different creation. They were flesh and blood. Which means it's possible for you to be a prophet if you, if you really want to. The Gemara gives you a strategy of how to become a prophet if you want to. Even though we're actually after the generation of prophecy, and there's no prophets in the world, you can still become a prophet. How? You follow the entire path. Become a mash, ish kodesh, kodesh kodashim, I mean, it gives you exactly a path. I went over it to one of the shulim. Otherwise, we just do tshuva and forget about being prophets. But nonetheless, the point is, you want to be, there's a way to do it. Now, what's the difference? What's the difference in prophecy? Each time someone fixed one of their bad midot, one of their bad character traits, they destroyed a wall that was separating them and God. Meaning each one of our bad character traits, stinginess, anger, so on and so forth, all of these bad character traits are as if it's a wall separating us and God. So in essence meaning that the lower level prophets had fixed their midot to a lower level. Still drastically better than any of us could imagine. But nonetheless, it wasn't as good as the ones other. So the Rambam explains to Shmonah Prakim, what's the difference between them and Moshe Rabbeinu, who is the prophet of all prophets. No one's ever going to be like Moshe, no one ever was like Moshe. Moshe perfected himself. Simply put, he was perfect. How perfect? The Rambam says, the separation between him and Hashem reached the pinnacle. As if there was a glass between them. It was just a glass separating them. You could see through it. And that's why he said to Hashem, let me see your kavod, let me, show me your kavodecha, show me your, your kavod, show me everything now. Hashem, you reached it. You reached the ultimate level you can reach, you perfected yourself as a human. Anything further, you have to stop being a human. You have to come with me to Olam Ha'emit. As long as you're going to be in this world, this is the highest level you could possibly achieve. Alvaya learned to even understand what this just meant. Forget about do it. Alvaya to understand what I just said. You understand or you have a schut in shemaim. To understand what I just said, what it means to be such a prophet. But now, he says to Moshe, I came to them as El Shaddai, to you, I show you my name. 
Then you see the plagues begin, disaster strikes, right at the time Moshe Rabbeinu comes to Paro and he tells him listen Hashem is going to bring hail Hashem is going to bring hail it's going to destroy everything anything that's going to be outside anything that's going to be outside is going to be destroyed So from here we learn the actual definition of Yirat Shemaim. It says, Whoever among the servants of Pao feared the word of Hashem, chased his servants and his livestock to the houses. Meaning, whoever feared the word of Hashem, ran inside and put his animals inside. But whoever did not pay attention and take Hashem's word to heart, left the servants and livestock in the field. So here, we have literally the definition of Yirat Shemaim. Yirat Shemaim, unlike any other word in the Hebrew language, doesn't have an opposite like other words. For example, tall, short. Dark, light. Yes, no. You understand? But so you would ask somebody, what is the opposite of Yirat Shemaim? What's the opposite of fear of the Almighty? You would think, no fear of the Almighty. Wrong. This specific verse, in chapter 9, verse 20, actually teaches us, not only about the plague, but the nature of God, of what it means not to have Yirat Shemaim. It says, what's the people that had Yirat Shemaim, that believed Moshe, what he said, that Hashem is going to bring hail, and so on. The people that feared Hashem, put their stuff inside the houses. The ones who didn't pay attention and did not take the words of God to heart left everything outside. Meaning, the opposite of Yirat Shemaim is not paying attention. Lo sam lev. Lo sam lev. Didn't put their heart to it. This actually originally learned from Rabbi Mizrahi years ago. And, uh, and here we have a lesson about Yad Shemaim from Hashem. But then, after this plague and everything that happens, Moshe Rabbeinu comes to Paro and he says to him, I'm going to speak to God to have him stop as soon as the uh, Moshe says to Moshe says Paro, when I leave the city, I shall spread out my hands to Hashem. The thunder will cease and the hail will be no longer. So that you know that the earth is Hashem's. So he says, Moshe says to Paro, okay, you're begging for us to, for Hashem to stop. Okay, as soon as I leave the city, Hashem is going to stop the thunder and the, and the hail. And then he adds this. As for you and your servants, I know 
that you're still not afraid of God. I know that still, even now, after all these plagues, you're still not afraid of Hashem. You're still not afraid of Hashem. And this is chapter 9, verse 29. Verse 30. And then, after he stopped, Hashem stopped the hail, the last plague in this parasha, what does it say? Paro continued to sin. Paro continued to sin. He didn't release Am Yisrael. He continued going against Hashem. Nothing changed. So far, not too many chidushim. So far, very similar to all the shiurim that we've done so far. Where it talks about the plagues. Talks about Midat Adin. Talks about measure for measure. As we've already done a couple of times, and I'm sure many other rabbis have done it hundreds and hundreds of times before. Now first you ask yourself, why is it that after all the plagues, after getting, already after the first plague, the second plague, the third plague, why didn't Paul do tshuva? I mean, after the third plague, it says that Hashem himself hardened his heart, meaning he removed his free choice. But that didn't happen for the first three plagues. When all of a sudden you wake up one day and all the water in the ocean, all the water in the beaches, all the water in the lakes, all the water in the sinks, all the water in your cups, all the water everywhere turns to blood. I mean, something strange. When all of a sudden you start seeing one giant frog appear and every time you hit it, millions of frogs come out of it. Just thinking about it, I want to do tshuva. When Hashem says, I'm going to put the frogs inside you. Not just in the food, in the ovens, and on the roofs. Inside you, meaning that every single day these people couldn't sleep. Why? The frogs were quirking inside their bodies. You should do tshuva just thinking about it. How come he didn't do tshuva? There's lice everywhere. Shem Echem lice. Each lice, the Chachamim say... In Agadat Pesach and Midrash Me'am Loez and a few other places I saw it, each slice was literally the size of an egg, a chicken egg. Each slice was the size of a chicken egg. Thinking about one of the Avinu it's worse than the Geinom Shiu. Each slice, and how much? Six feet from the ground. Meaning you couldn't avoid them. You were swimming in them. The tshuva. Why did the tshuva? Why does it say at the end of the parasha, he continued to sin? Sometimes, you tell a person the truth. You tell him, listen, Hashem says you have to keep Shabbat. Listen, you have to keep kosher. Listen, you have to be modest. Listen, you have to do this. Listen, you have to do that. They tell you, okay, you listen. I need proofs. I need proofs that God said it. Maybe you said it. Maybe you just like people that wear mitpachat on their head. Maybe it's... You have some type of crazy thing in your mind. Maybe you have a uh, scarf store on the side. 
Maybe you're the number one distributor of scarves in the world. You make a dollar out of every scarf that's sold. Who knows? Maybe you own every single yeshiva in the world. You want my kids to send them, for me to send my kids to the yeshiva so you make 500 bucks a month out of them. Like, how do I know God said it? How do I know you don't have a bias? I want to see proofs. God said it. So you say, no problem. Let me show you proofs. We sit down, I show you proofs. Oh Hashem, we've already done it many times. We have it online. I don't have to sit down with anybody anymore. You want proofs? I send you a link. You watch the video. Finished. Finished. One, two, three, four, five videos. You're finished. You have all the proofs you could possibly want. Many we've done ourselves. Many other rabbis have done. The point is there's a complete picture. It doesn't matter whether it's scientific, medical, rational, whatever it is. Baruch Hashem. All types of proofs are available to show you God actually said it. Sometimes, Rabotai, you show a person all the proofs in the world. Like this one young man that I had when I went to California a couple of years ago, I had a lecture series over there. I had a lecture with a group of kids, maybe 25, 30 kids, young kids. Two hours almost. Two hours lecture. At the end of the two hour lecture, the rabbi comes to me with a young guy, maybe 20 years old. And he says, can you sit down with him a little bit? He has, he has some questions. Now the kid has to keep on. Not so big, but you know, they keep on. And it's okay, sure, I have some questions, no problem. Two hours and 45 minutes. I'm sitting down with this kid, going over proofs. As if the first two hours, you didn't exist. He's asking questions, I'm giving him answers. He's asking questions, I'm giving him answers. It's like, it's a, you have questions, eh? questions, whatever you want, no problem. Some of the questions I didn't know, Hashem gave me the answer. At, but every answer, yeah, yeah, yeah. At the end of two, to four, two hours and 45 minutes, okay, so you're ready to keep Shabbat, you're ready to do this, you're ready to do that. Ah, you know, I don't know, it's like, a, it's interesting, it's interesting. What do you mean interesting? Two hours and four, that means almost five hours we sat. Five hours we sat, why not? All the questions you had, I gave you answers. All the issues you brought to me to contradict it are wrong. And I proved you that they were wrong. And anything that's not wrong, that wasn't a, weren't able to prove as wrong, it's simply because it's a theory, it's a thought, it's an estimate, it's a guess. No one knows. It's like measuring the size of space. No one knows. So what you have is guesses. What I provide you is facts. I showed you. Yeah, but it could always just happen. So then I said, okay, the bait is finished. Oh, we can't do a little more. I said, at this point, I know that there's no way for me to win. There's, you're not looking for the truth. At this point, I understand you're just looking for an excuse to justify your existing life to continue. You're not looking for the truth. You were just hoping that I'm not going to have the answer. So therefore, you go back to your Ima and Abba. Say, Ima, Abba, I spoke to this guy. He doesn't know. He says he's a rabbi. He doesn't know anything. I'm going to go back and I'm going to go date my non-Jew. I'm going to go eat pig on Yom Kippur. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm not. But now you got the answer. You still don't want to do tshuva. That means you're not looking for the answers. You're looking for justification for your existing behavior. I'm not here to facilitate your craziness. 
But why, Rabotai, I provided you the proof. Why wouldn't you change? Why? Why didn't Paro do tshuva? Why do people sometimes, not often, sometimes their hearts are mamas, such stone, you show them the proof, and they still don't do tshuva. Why? It's rare, but it happens. Why? Rav Saadia Gaon said something that when I told my father over Shabbat, he was visiting us, I told him what he said, we had to, we had to sit down and learn a little bit, I told him this, my father, Mamash, almost started crying on Shabbat. He said, how true this is. Rav Gaon said, you know, you're obligated to go visit the sick. You're obligated to go visit someone sick. It's a mitzvah from the Torah that Rabbi Akiva said to all of his Tanaim, all of his students, if you don't give, go visit someone that's sick, you know he's sick, you don't go visit him, it's like you murdered him. So it's like you murdered him. Why? Because he may need some encouragement to come back to health. You didn't come, he died because of you. So it's not like a mitzvah, like it's nice to do. Oh, it's a nice gesture. Look, my kids are visiting the sick people. No. It's much an obligation to visit the sick. Now, he said sometimes, don't feel like it. Pashut, your friend's sick, your partner's sick, Someone's sick, close to you. You guys were friends 25 years. Your partner's in business. He invested into your business a million dollars. He invested in your business a million dollars. Now your business is worth a billion. You're a billionaire now. But in reality, you wouldn't have been nothing if he didn't invest in your business. Or this or that. Someone, that's, someone that you know, not someone that you know from 35 years ago. Now, you know, now, you know, it's, get sick. You don't feel like going. But shoot, you don't feel like going. You want to go on vacation instead. You want to go to Hawaii. I'm going to go see the ocean and uh, trees. You don't want to go to the hospital. It's uh, who knows how many diseases are in there. People are screaming, yelling, crying. Who wants to go to the hospital? Well, it's fun. No, it's not fun. I spent a lot of time in hospitals. It's never been fun. A lot of times, hospitals it's never been fun. Never. Not one time I can say, you know what? Baruch Hashem, what a fun time I spent in this hospital. Never said it once. Months I spent in hospitals, I told you, not once, I ever said, you know what, five-star hospital. I'm, I can't wait to come back, never. I never said I can't wait to come back to this hospital. So it's not fun to go to hospitals. So you say to a guy, listen, he's sick, you know, your friend for 25 years, your friend for 10 years, you're this guy, they did, da, da, da. he's sick, go visit him. No, 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 I'm going on vacation. No, 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 I'm busy at work. No, 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 I'm busy at this. No, no, I'm not going. The guy is sick, and you're not going to visit him. But then, video, he's sick for a while. Six months he's sick. A year he's sick. You haven't come visit him to the point where it's like, it's not that he's sick for a week, you don't go visit, okay, you don't go visit, I'll visit him when he comes out. No, he's sick for a while. And now everyone else notices, hey, his best friend didn't come visit him? Hey, his brother didn't come visit him? Hey, his cousin didn't come visit him? He's been here for, okay, if he's busy for the first week, you have to go on a honeymoon, you have to go to Jehennam, you have to go to this, you have to go to that, fine, a week, two weeks, fine. But a year already you didn't visit him? So now the guy that didn't visit, what does he do? 
Does he do tshuva? Does he go visit him? Rav Sadia Gaon says, the person's embarrassment is so high at that moment when he realizes that what he did was wrong, that he didn't go visit someone, that now, instead of doing tshuva, chatanu, avinu, pashanu, I'm sorry I didn't come visit you over the last year, I was busy, I was this, I was wrong, I was. I forgot, I lost track of time. No, he doesn't say that. What does he do? He goes to Bikness and he starts praying to God to kill him. Why to kill him? Because that way I don't have to face the embarrassment. I rather him die in the hospital. That way, I don't have to face the embarrassment. I don't have to face the embarrassment. That is what it says. My father heard this on Shabbat. He said, "You almost start crying." He says, "It's hundred percent true." It's mamash. I met from Shemaim. It's a hundred percent true of how people behave. When someone mamash, someone is evil and his nature is evil. There's no Torah. That's exactly his nature. And I can tell you from experience, I had it happen to me. I was very sick. And it was a specific... Oh Hashem, some people came to visit, but there was one specific guy that I helped him more than anyone else. He had drug problems. I sent him to rehab twice. Twice I sent him to rehab. Each time $18,000 I paid. Got arrested, I bailed him out. He had in trouble, lived with me. I took care of this guy like he was my baby. Why? Because he lent me a dollar every day many years before that. I tell you as part of my story. So he lent me a dollar 300 times. I gave him $300,000. Point is, I took care of him because I appreciated a little bit of favor that he did to me when I needed it. I got sick. Everyone knew. Even people that haven't seen me in 20 years knew I was dying. Everyone knew I was dying. It wasn't a secret. Everyone knew. You don't just go from nothing to from something to nothing, and uh, the world doesn't hear the, the earthquake. No way to be found. Disappeared. Okay, maybe he's on vacation for the first week, or maybe it's uncomfortable for the first month, or maybe it's unusual for the first six months. Three and a half years later, he gives me a phone call. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> Has everything. Long time no speak. Now by then, I asked about him a bunch of times to people. I'm like, how? Dimitri didn't come yet? Like, what's going on? Is he okay? Is he alive? Did he overdose finally? Like, what happened? Like, no, no, he's actually doing great. He's doing this, he's doing that. Da, 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 da. So how come? Well, he didn't know I was sick. No, he actually asked about you once and I told him you were sick and da, 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 da. He asked a couple times. He knows you're sick. He knows everything. So I, finally, after three and a half years, I want to verify the story. Hey, how you doing? I said, uh, I'm alive. How you doing? Da, da, da. I'm like, let me ask you, you knew? Oh, yeah, yeah, I knew, I knew. Uh, just, uh, I was a little bit uh, uncomfortable. I just uh, didn't have a chance, and then I was uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, but how's everything now? How's everything now? I said, everything is fine. Thank you. I, I got to go. Wait, wait, no, I want to talk. I'm like, ah, listen, man. <laughs> Everything wasn't fine for you. I was there 24 hours a day. Abutai, the embarrassment level at that moment, you want to bury yourself. You'd rather the guy die. That's what the Chachamim say. Chachamim say that sometimes you have such selfishness inside you 
You cannot deal with the embarrassment. What is this like? This is exactly like when someone tells you, oh, I want to know the truth, I want to know the truth. You provide them the truth. You provide them all the proofs in the world. And they still don't want to do tshuva. Why don't they want to do tshuva? It's not because they disagree with you. They agree it's 100% true. God is real, the Torah is real, everything is real. But they cannot do tshuva. They cannot do tshuva for their sin. Why? They're embarrassed. they rather die or you die than them fulfilling the, the, when doing tshuva. Now this leads me to my next point. This next point is going to shake up some people. But it's necessary, nonetheless. Inside the parasha, when we pay attention to a little bit more of the details of what's happening in the parasha, we actually see that the Chachamim say that the reason why Hashem saved Am Yisrael from Mitzrayim was not because of the special men, but rather because of the special women. The special tzaddikot of Am Yisrael. He saved Am Yisrael from Egypt because of the tzaddikot. He will save Am Yisrael with the Mashiach at the end of times because of the tzaddikot of that generation. Same thing that happened will happen again. But it's not easy to be a tzaddikah. So in this parasha, in between the words, in between the stories, we see the divine hand at work. There are a few women that are mentioned inside this parasha. And each one will give us a little bit of an understanding of the ways of Hashem. In chapter 6, verse 15, in this section... It talks about how the lineage of the heads of Am Yisrael, the tribe of Reuven and his sons, the tribe of Shimon and his sons, the tribe of Levi and his sons, to show you where Moshe and Aaron came from. Where Moshe and Aaron came from. At the end of the section in verse 30, it reminds us that, or verse 26 again, it says that this is Aaron and Moshe. Which Aaron and Moshe? This is Aaron and Moshe, whom Hashem said to them, take the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their allegiance. And then later on it says, this was Moshe and Aaron. Meaning it repeats multiple times, this is the same Moshe and Aaron. There wasn't two Moshe and Aaron. There's one Moshe and Aaron. This whole lineage that we just went through is where Moshe and Aaron came from. Now, in between that whole story of how we go from the tribe of Reuven and how his descendants and Shimon and his descendants and Levi and his descendants all the way to Moshe and Aaron, we see the first woman in this parasha. Who is this first woman? Knanit. 
tell the name? No, she was a Canaanite, Canaanite, meaning she was a Canaanite. It's the first woman that's mentioned. Who is this woman? It says when it talks about the sons of Shimon, the sons of Shimon, Shimon was Yemuel, Yamin, Oad, Yachin, Tzochar, Veshaul, Ben Aknanit. All of these sons. And then there was this name, is one son, that's the son of the Canaanite woman. Son of the Canaanite woman. Who is this Canaanite? Another woman, also mentions Yochevet later on, but another woman that I saw, noticed, it's very interesting, very interesting. Another woman, if you fast forward a few verses in this lineage, it says in verse 23, Aaron took Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadav, the sister of Nachshon, as wife. And she bore him a Nadav, and Aviu, and Lazar, and Itamar. Before that, it also mentions Yochebet, the mother of Aaron and Moshe, the wife of Amram. <coughs> so we have another couple of women here. We have Yochebet, who had the merit of not only marrying the Gdolador Amram, but also having three children, all of them prophets. Aaron, Moshe, and Miriam. After that, it talks about Elisheva. Elisheva married Aaron. Who is Elisheva? Elisheva was the daughter of Aminadav. The sister of Nachshon. And then lastly, in verse 25, one of the sons of Aaron, Elazar, took for himself one of the daughters of Putiel as a wife. Who's Putiel? Itro. Jethro. It's another one of his names. I believe he had seven names. He took one of the daughters of Putiel as a wife, and she bore him, who? Pinchas. So here we have four different women, four different women that are mentioned. First one is the Knanit. Second one is Yochevet. Third one is Elisheva. And the last one is the daughter of Putiel. These are the women that are highlighted in the Torah. If it's highlighted in the Torah, that means it's carries as many women lived. Millions and millions of women lived. Millions and millions of women were part of Am Yisrael. They're not mentioned. These women are mentioned. It means it's something special. What's so special about them to be mentioned in the Torah that's eternal? Hashem is trying to teach you, teach us, 
his ways. What can we learn from these women? In the times of the exodus of Yetziat Mitzrayim, and how can we apply it today? How is it relevant to today? First and foremost, Shaul ben Knaanit. Who is the Knaanit? The overwhelming majority of the sages say the Knaanit is another name for Dina. Dina, the daughter of Yaakov. Why was she called the Knaanit? Why was she called the Knaanit? Because if you rewind all the way back to Genesis chapter 34, chapter 34, you will see the horrible event that happened with Dina, that Dina got raped. Dina got raped by Shechem. And she was embarrassed from that moment on. And she refused to continue living our life. She got in a depression. So Yaakov Avinu figured out a solution. You can't be constantly looking at your own depression, you know, your, what happened, and be reminded of what happened and get over it. It's very difficult. So, okay, first of all, the child that came out of it, send her to a different family. Send her to a different family. It's going to raise her. And I'll make sure that with Hashem, I'll pray and I'll give a medallion to know who she is and so on. Know that she's one of our descendants. Send her. They ended up, Chazal says, they ended up giving that daughter up to who? To Potiphar. To Potiphar. That daughter's name was Osnat. Osnat later on, do, 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 you fast forward a little over 20 years, she marries Yosef Tzadik. When Yosef became Avrem, became the viceroy of Egypt, all the women finally saw his beauty. They all wanted to marry him. And they all, in some cases, threw their underwear at him. Amash, he was so beautiful. They all wanted to just look at him. They wanted to just look at him. Yosef was Sadiq, looked on the floor only. Until one woman threw a medallion that hit the floor. And he saw there's Hebrew writings, engravings on the medallion. And no one in Egypt knew Hebrew. Only he did. He looked at it and he said, This Osnat, granddaughter of Yaakov. Oh, I want to marry her. So Amas, prophecy, Hashem's divine hand runs the world. The daughter of, of, of Dina ends up being the only one that's Yosef and Tzadik could actually marry in Egypt. And that's what happens. But now Dina still can't continue with her life because she remembers what happened and so on and so forth. So Chazal say that until Shimon married her, she couldn't get over the embarrassment of what happened. To know that at least if he marries me, that I'm still acceptable. I'm still acceptable, so Shimon married her. Now, why did this whole thing happen to Dina? Why is it mentioned her name? Why is it Knanit, the Canaanite? Because she's re- this is a form of rebuke. This is a form of divine rebuke. Dina came from the seed of Yaakov, came from a Kodesh Kodeshim, and had all the opportunities of the world to be one of the most righteous women that ever lived. But in chapter 34 of Sefer Bereshi, Genesis, it says, Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom he had born to Yaakov, went out to look over the daughters of the land. 
She went out לראות בבנות הארץ. She went out to go see what the other people do. The sages explain this contradicts the code of modesty. Why do you want to know what the goyim are doing? Why do you want to know what the other daughters in the world are doing? Why don't you stay with your own family? Why don't you stay with your own kind? Why do you care what the goyim are doing? Why do you care that the goyim wear wigs? Why do you care what the goyim wear mini skirts? Why do you care if the goyim do this, this and that? Why? You want to be like them? Okay. She got punished. How punished? Severely. One of those goyim raped Hashem Echem. And this is something she had to live with, but not just then, eternally. So much so that the Torah itself calls her the Canaanite woman. Why? Because the Canaanite raped her. This also shows the authenticity of the Torah itself, that it's not hiding anything that's embarrassing, like some of the other books in the world that's uh, from different religions. If anything, it highlights it. That's a very hard punishment. Why? You're not supposed to be like the Goyim. To understand the significance of being a chosen Jew, a chosen Ben Obat Israel, is one of the most important missions you have in your life. If you misunderstand it, you could literally lose your life. Dina had an opportunity of a lifetime, and for a moment she peaked. She didn't go, she didn't marry, she didn't do anything, she peaked. He said, that's already too much. That's already too much. You care what they look like, what they do, where they shop, what they eat, what they don't eat. Why? It's not enough what you have. It's not enough to know that you're the, the, you're the daughter of Yaakov. It's not enough to know that you're the daughter of God Himself. It's not enough. God says, you're my daughter. God Himself. God said, you're my daughter. You're my, you. you are my daughter. You're my princess. No one is above you. The whole world was created for you, my daughter. It's not enough. You want more? The whole world. All of the galaxies. All the planets. All the stars. All the everything. Was created just for you, my special daughter. It's not enough. You still want to know what the other Goyim are doing? Why? Why? It's very rude. It's very rude behavior. As we talked about in the beginning of the shiur, all Hashem wants to do is give you good. He made an event, 500 zillion dollars, just for you. He built a whole world for you, with planets and stars and suns and little cute little bugs, or sometimes they're ugly, but for you they're cute maybe. And, and, and flowers, and they smell good, and there's different colors, and there's light, and there's shade, and there's air, and there's water, and there's fish, and there's different types of fish, and there's animals, and some of them are strange looking, but they're still cute. And there's children, and even though you sometimes want to kill them, but they're so cute you don't want to because they're yours. And, and you know, and all these wonderful things. He created all of it for you. My precious daughter, he created it for you. And what are you saying? No, I'm busy. I want to see what, uh, what the non-Jews are doing. I want to act like them. It's rude, to say the least. So Dina, she stayed with the Nam Yisrael, Hashem, but her stature changed. She stayed with the Nam Yisrael, she still mentioned in the Torah, Alvaya later to be mentioned in the Torah. 
But nonetheless, we see here clearly Chazal teaches if it wasn't written, we wouldn't be allowed, wouldn't be allowed to say it. We see the stature changed. The fact that you're looking elsewhere means you don't know what you have at home. The fact that you're still looking at, at other women means you don't appreciate your wife. It's not your wife's fault, it's your fault. The fact that you're looking at your neighbor's car, house, and money means you don't appreciate how hard your husband's working. The fact that you're looking at the neighbor's kids means you don't value your precious kids. Why are you looking somewhere else? Why? Why? Why don't you appreciate what God gave you? The sages teaches who is rich, someone who's happy with his share. Hashem created the entire planet for you and you're still not happy. It's very rude. So Dina, the special, excuse me, the special woman lost stature within Am Yisrael. Next woman. Yochevet. Yochevet was the aunt of Amram. Yochevet, she wanted to do something, she went to Amram. Allowed, not allowed. Allowed, not allowed. One day Amram says, listen, Paro is killing all the all of all of us, all the children, all the firstborns. Listen, we gotta we gotta leave. We gotta separate. Divorce is a get. You ever see a pasuk, a midrash, you have a complaint? No. What's okay? Yogdolado. Yogdolado says, no, it's no. Okay, divorce, divorce. Then his little genius daughter, the prophet Miriam, at 60 years old, comes, hey, Abba, Abba, you're worse than Paro. What? What do you mean worse than Paro? You're worse than Paro, Abba. Why am I worse than Paro? Be it was my daughter, tell me worse than Paro. I don't know if I would act the same way. What did he say, Amram Gdolado? What did he say, Tzaddik? What did he say, the person never sinned in his life? One of four people had never sinned in his life. What does he say to his little prophet daughter? He says, Biti Lama. Why? Why am I worse than Paro? Instead of go to your room, you rude little kid. He says, Why? Why am I worse than Paro? He says, Abba, Paro is only killing the boys. By you divorcing Ima, everyone's going to follow you, which means it's not going to be boys or girls. You're killing both. Pa'o is rasha, which means that Hashem may not fulfill His will. You are tzaddik, which means Hashem will fulfill your will. Yes. Yeah. He says, My little six-year-old daughter, you're right. Do shiduch, give you a thousand dollars. Marry, hook me up with your mom again. Sebi with your mom, go to shiduch. Yochevet tzaddika, kodesh kodeshim. She goes back to her husband. She doesn't say, hey, you kicked me out. Hey, you have to pay me extra. Hey, no. Okay, now I'm back. Doladot wants me back. No problem. You did it for mitzvah. You want to do it again for mitzvah? No problem. What happened with that, that removal of any ego? What did she get? She got the humblest man of all time to be her son. Moshe Rabbeinu. She got the... Most important person in the Bet Mikdash, the Kohen Gadol, to be a son also, Aruna Kohen. She got the top prophet woman in history to be a daughter, Miriam. That's what she got. For what? Removing ego. And she's mentioning the Torah by name. Next. You have Elisheva, daughter of Aminadab. Who is Elisheva? Who is this Elisheva, daughter of Aminadab? How many women are named Elisheva today? Every day is Elisheva. Does anybody know who's Elisheva? Does anybody know where Elisheva is? There's a few people named Elisheva. 
But who is this? It's mentioned in Torah. Aaron married Elisheva. What's so special about Elisheva? What's so special? The fact that she's married to Aaron, Chazak Okay, you don't have to be a genius. It says it's married to married to Aaron. Okay, what that makes her special? Okay, Aaron was special. So you could say Aaron's side was good. She got lucky. She got lucky. She married. She she caught a good one. No, Rabotai. Elisheva was the daughter of Aminada, very special family. Why special family? Because Aminada was also the father of Nachshon. Who's Nachshon? Who's Nachshon? Nachshon was the one that said, Oh, we're in the Sea of Reeds. On one side we have just ocean. On the other side we have desert and the Egyptians coming down to kill us. Nowhere to go. Some people want to commit suicide. Some people want to go and fight. The other people want to go back to be slaves. Nachshon ben Aminadav says, No, no, no. If God brought us here, that means it's for the best. Everything that the merciful one does, he does it for the best. Like Rabbi Akiva said, Masechet Brachot, page 63 or 66. At the end of Masechet Brachot, is what he said, everything's for the best. Nachshon, he says, must be for the best. If he brought us to the ocean, it means for the best. I'm going in. What do you mean in? It's, it's, it's deep. That's Hashem's problem. It's deep. He brought us here. That means he wants us here. Egyptians are coming. We obviously can't stay here. That's against logic. Okay, but the ocean's also against logic. No, it's against human logic. I'm going in. And he continued going into the ocean with 150 million percent emunah shlema. Up to the point where he started swallowing water. And it got to his nose, and at that moment, Hashem opened the split the sea for him. Why? Yet emuna, yet emuna. The ocean split. So obviously, she came from a special family. But how special is this family? How? Okay, Nachshon, Chazaku Baruch. Nachshon is good. So she got lucky with a husband. She got lucky with a brother. Who's Elisheva? Elisheva is the tribe of Yehuda, where the Mashiach comes from. Mashiach comes from Nachshon. Why? Emunah Shlema. It's a family of Emunah Shlema. It's not just, oh, he got... Big deal. That's why I mentioned by name. Next, Rabotai. You see, each one of these is a character trait to have or not to have. And then we finish off with Elazar, the son of Aaron, who married one of the daughters of the convert Putiel, Yitro. What's so special? What's so special? Elazar learned a lot from his father, even more so from his brothers dying, even more so from Am Yisrael, and even more so from his father-in-law that was Yitro, that was Ish Emet. Even though he was an idol worshiper for a big part of his life, when he discovered the truth, he left everything on a table and he went after it. And that's how he raised his son. And that's how she raised their son. Who did they get? Pinchas. Who's Pinchas? Pinchas saved all of Am Yisrael when we all sinned. With the foreigner woman, Pinchas went there and said, I'm putting my life on a line for what? For Hashem. Don't go against Hashem. You want to go against Hashem? I'll kill you. And he went and he killed the leader of the Shimon tribe. Zimri and Kosbi killed both of them. 
Why? For the honor of Hashem, not for his own honor, not because he's crazy, not because he's, a, he's not even a fighter, he's Talmud Chacham. He wasn't even a warrior. But he got special strength where he killed both of them and then he lifted them up in the air. Why? Honor of Hashem. Zealousy of Hashem. What was the reward? He's Kohen Gadol. What was the other reward? He's Eliyahu Navi. He's going to meet the Mashiach that comes from Nachshon. He's going to introduce him. He's going to introduce him three days later. Three days before. 3,000, 4,000 years later. You see, Rabotai, you see, these names are not for nothing. This is inside the story you read a thousand times already. You missed it. I missed it also. So we see when it says the Chachamim say that Hashem saved Am Yisrael because of the special women, we see a few things. These women really were special. From the least of them to the greatest of them, not to judge any one of them. We see these women were really special. We see these women were unbelievable. What they did for Am Yisrael, what they did for the honor of Hashem. If we look at these generations, we see some similar actions. So how come some of these things are not highlighted? They're not highlighted because unfortunately us men, we're messing up a little bit. Right now, there is, as I've told you many times, and we'll repeat it again, there is a big, huge lie that's infected Am Yisrael bigger than any disease that we've ever had. And that's the disease of falsehood being taught by leaders to tell people that they're doing a mitzvah when in reality they're doing an avirah. Now, when it comes to wigs, this is not a problem for a small community. This is a problem for pretty much the entire religious Jewish world. A very small fraction of women, comparison, actually cover their head like they're supposed to, according to the majority of Puskim throughout all of history, with a hat or a scarf. Many women wear wigs. Now, there's been a debate about the issue of wigs for almost 400 years, which originally started, as we said in the past, by a misunderstanding by the Shitegi Burim, because all the Chachamim went against it, of the Gemara Masechet Shabbat, page 64b, the Mishnah there, that talks about hair on the head and, and, and Pe'anochrit, which the Be'er Sheva went against, and so did many, many other of the Chachamim. Fast forward to not repeat some of the things we've mentioned in previous Shulim. Nonetheless, there are over 127 poskim throughout history that have said that wearing a wig is 100% asu. Why asu? It's asu, it's not allowed, it's forbidden, because it's not modest. It's not modest. Because the mitzvah of covering a woman's hair is an obligation. It's not like a chumrah, it's not a stringency, it's an obligation. It's an obligation in Shulchan Aruch, it's an obligation in the Zohar, it's an obligation in the five books of Moses, Pasha Tzuta. 
or Naso, it starts with that specific Sheshkin, it's called Sota. It's an obligation in the Gemara, in several places. It's everywhere. Everyone knows that a Jewish woman must cover her hair. And for generation among generation, righteous Jewish women, all the, to, all the way back from the days of the Chumash, over 3,300 years ago, 4,000 years ago, covered the hair with the mitpachat. 5,000 years ago with the Sarai Menu. Covered the hair with mitpachat. But now, a few hundred years ago, things, certain things changed. So, the Machloket begins with this specific Mishnah, which says the following. A woman may go out on Shabbat with her hair braided with strands of hair, whether the strands are her own hair, or whether the strands are hair of her companion, or whether the strands are of an animal, with a frontlet, or with the head bangles, they are sewn to the hat, with an ornament, uh, with an ornamental wo- uh, woolen cap, or with a wig into the courtyard. So this whole Gemara, and it continues, so Gemara talks about whether someone is allowed to put something on their head and walk outside when there's no Yeruv. Because in essence, it's carrying something. So is it considered carrying, or is it considered something like a piece of clothing which you're allowed to wear? So here it says there's a few different types of things. There is strands of hair, her hair, a friend's hair, an animal hair, or there's a uh, hat by itself, or there's a hat uh, with uh, bangles on it, or there is a um, wig, a wig itself. So here the Shiltegibuim said, oh, see, there you go. It says that you're allowed to wear a wig on Shabbat. So it means you're allowed to wear a wig on Shabbat. It means you're allowed to wear a wig the rest of the week. But why did everybody go against what he said? He says, because you didn't read Rashi. You missed Rashi. What did Rashi say? Rashi said, first of all, who are these women that are putting strands of hair? Why are they just putting a strand of hair? Why did they put the whole wig? If you're already putting a wig, put a whole thing. Why are you putting strands of hair? First and foremost, you should know who's putting this hair. First off, some people get sick, they get bald spots. So it's embarrassing to have a bald spot. So put hair on it. Second thing, if you're going to uh, cover your hair anyway, with a mitpachet, with a scarf or a hat, why do you need to put the strands of hair? Because if you've ever seen, if you've ever seen a cancer patient, someone that's bald, and they cover their hair with a bandana, you know that they're bald. So many of the women, even if they cover their hair with a bandana and they really don't have hair, under it they still put a wig. Why? Because it still gives them more of a comfortable feeling, a comfortable look, to have that puffy hair look under the kisurosh. Even if it's Jew or non-Jew. So it says that even though, obviously all the women are covering their hair if they're married. So even if they're covering their hair, they're covering that bald spot with hair, not because you're going to see that hair, but rather because they don't want you to see that there's some type of hole there. Looks deformed. So what's the problem of just simply wearing the wig? What does what uh, Rashi say? 
He says, the wig is allowed, the wig is allowed because the only reason anything would not be allowed, for example, it's not allowed to wear certain ornaments on their head or certain things on their head, because of the fear that they'll take it off on Shabbat to show it to their friend, look how nice this crown is. Look how nice my crown is. And then forget to put it on their head and they're carrying it. And they're violating Shabbat. They're violating Shabbat because they're carrying something now. So there's certain things you're not allowed to wear, specifically because a woman likes to show off her stuff. If it's really nice, she wants to show off a friend, oh look, I, my husband just got this for me. Look, my son just got this for me, and so on and so forth. And now you're going to forget to put it back to where it belongs. And you're going to carry it. And you're not allowed to carry it if there's no iruv. So he says, Rashi says, there's no problem with wearing the wig. Why? Why is there no problem with wearing a wig? Because there's no fear of a woman removing that wig. Why is there no fear of that woman removing the wig? Because the wig is sewn into the hat that she's wearing. On top of the wig. The wig is sewn into the hat she's wearing. And of course she's not going to take off the hat because then you, she's going to be violating the Torah. She must cover her hair. So even if she wants to show somebody, hey, look at my nice wig. It's from France. It's from uh, Nigeria. It's from, I don't know, Brazil, wherever it is. She's not going to do it. Why? Because the wig is sewn to the hat. Because she has to have something to cover her hair. So she can't just take off the wig. She has to take off the hat. If she takes off the hat, she's going to show off her head. She's going to show off her real hair. Not allowed. So here, all of the Chachamim, all of the ones that say it's Asul, it's not allowed to cover your hair with a simple wig. They're not using their own opinions. This is Gemara Meforeshet. This is what the Gemara says. Why is it not allowed to simply wear a wig by itself? Why is it not allowed? The Gemara specifically says in the same place, in 64b. Shevach Ula, because it will be considered an enhancement if an older woman is wearing the hair of a younger woman. Meaning, you're wearing hair that improves your looks, which is going to grab the attention of other people, which is an immodest act by definition. An older woman is not going to, you know, no older woman is, is getting a wig of white hair. If she's already going to wear a wig, she's going to wear a wig of a younger woman's hair. That is by definition not allowed. That's what the Gemara says. So when the Shitego Bukhim missed it, all of the other Chachamim said, you're 100% wrong, and that's why the overwhelming majority of Puskim throughout all of history... I've said it's forbidden 100% to wear a wig. Over 117 poskim said it already before recent history. Another 10 recently were added. But the recent 10 that were added were added for even another reason. The recent 10 that were added were added for a more significant reason. Why were they added? Because after an, an, an intensive amount of studying that we've done, people in India, people in different markets, a lot of research that we did, and... As you all know, I was on Wall Street for almost 20 years. That was my profession. That was what I did. That was my expertise. We pretty much have a, not like an opinion. It's a certainty. 
It's a market certainty. It's not my opinion. It's a market certainty. You go to any expert within the industry, real expert that's not biased, and you ask him, where does the hair of real hair wigs originate from for the majority of the market? Statistically, according to researchers beyond myself, over 90% of the hair in the world that goes for wigs comes from India. No other place. It does come from Cambodia and from China and from Russia and from different places, but it's small amounts in comparison to the large amounts. Why the small amounts? Why can't they just bring half of it from Russia? Why can't they bring half of it from China? Why can't they bring half of it from Brazil? Each one of those countries has its own explanation. First and foremost, Cambodia, it's very nice. Thank you very much for providing some of the hair. You just don't have a very big population though to provide a $10 billion business with hair. It's a $10 billion market. It's not like a $2 million business. It's a $10 billion industry. You cannot, Cambodia cannot provide even 5% of the market's hair. Finish Cambodia. Brazil, a lot of people say Brazil comes from Brazil. I asked some Brazilians, oh, do you have people that donate hair and, or, or sell their hair in Brazil? They start laughing in my face. I said, well, okay, you don't have to laugh at me. Why? Why do you, why, why you think it's not, not funny? I'm not really doing research. Like Brazilians and people from you know, this part of the world would be more likely to commit suicide from starvation than shave their head. Such is the appreciation of, of personal beauty in that country, in that part of the world. So it's never happening. It's never happening. Brazil, gone. There are a few suppliers in Brazil, but after further research, we saw they were just smarter than everybody else. And already in the early uh, 80s and 1990s, they made contracts with the temples in India. A few of them made some big contracts with the temples in India, which we'll get to in a moment. Okay. Russia. Russia has this Shemelchem thing that they do where they go to the, the women prisons and they force the women, even if it requires physical beatings, to shave their head and then they sell the hair. This, how many, how many people in jail can you possibly have? It cannot supply a $10 billion business. I'm sorry. So then you say, okay, you have only left Europe. You go to Europe, France, England, Italy. You ask them, you guys shave your head, you see any bald people in the street? They're going to laugh at you the same way they laughed at you in Brazil. It's, it's not happening. You don't see the Queen of England shaving their head to donate our hair anywhere. You don't see even the homeless people do such thing. It's just not part of their thing. And you don't see them selling it either. You don't see them selling it either. The reason why you don't see many people selling it, because you can get it for free. If someone sold it, if someone wanted to sell their hair, they'd sell it for a lot of money. No one in their right mind would sell long hair that took them 15, 20 years to grow. No one in their right mind will sell 50 bucks. You're gonna sell for several thousand. Why would I buy as a wig maker? As a supplier, why would I buy your hair for two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine thousand dollars if I can get it for free? Meaning for pennies on a dollar, just go to India. So now you have yourself two main markets left. You have China and you have India. China gets hair from dead people. 
China has a population of a billion and a half people, approximately. And when people die, part of the people, actually they shave their head and they sell the hair. This is forbidden according to the Torah. You're not allowed to use the anything of the dead. So that I don't have to debate. It's a known fact. It's not allowed. But Chinese, you can tell it's Chinese. Yeah, nonetheless, either way, even if it is, even if it's not, it's forbidden. It's forbidden. But even more so, even more so, there's not as many people dying in China as there is people donating hair in India. Why India? Because India, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, has had it as part of their many religions to donate the hair to one of their false gods, to one of their idols. You have over a billion people live in India currently. Average, statistically, according to market research, not me, market research, professionals, experts, different major hedge funds, major uh, research houses, major business outlets, and so on, said average person has donated their hair at least two and a half times. Meaning two and a half billion. That's the market. There's no other country, including China, that can supply the market like this. Why? Because even if you got the hair from some European or some Israeli or some Cambodian or some Chinese or some, it still be drastically more expensive. Why? Because someone's selling it. Here, the people are giving it for free and they're actually paying the temple to take the hair. No other market can compete with free. It's the best price. Now, why are they doing it for free? Because it is 100% idol worship. Just like Le'avdil, a million avdalot, big difference, we brought korbanot to Hashem in the Beit HaMikdash. They bring their hair to their false idols of rats and statues and all types of foolishness. Same thing in their eyes. Obviously stupidity, but nonetheless, their purpose is the same. According to the Gemara, Masechet Avodah Zarah, according to the Shulchan Aruch, according to the entire Torah, once something was used for idol worship, it can never be undone. That's why as soon as Yeshua ben Nun went into Amis, went to Eretz Yisrael, Hashem said, burn all the trees. Why burn the trees? What they do? Somebody worshipped them. Yeah, but the tree itself is innocent. didn't do anything. doesn't make a difference. It was used for idol worship once, it can never be used again. It must be destroyed. The only mitzvah left for its existence is to destroy it. It cannot be used. You can't make it into paper. You can't make it into tables. You can't make it used for beauty. You can't use its fruit. It must be destroyed. Meaning, if you have a wig and you have a zillion hairs in the wig and one hair in it, one hair came from idolatry. Just one hair, not the whole thing. One hair, but you don't know which hair. The whole wig has to be destroyed. Why you can't take the chance, can't take the chance that that one hair is on your head because that's idol worship. Now, all poskim, all Torah, all real scholars, all real Jews, everyone agrees you're not allowed to benefit from idol worship. Everyone. But there was some heretic that pretends to be a rabbi that came up and says, no, no, we're going to kosher the wigs. We're going to... Uh, oversee it, we're gonna this, we're gonna this, we're gonna that. I already made enough videos about that, that the whole koshering of wigs is complete nonsense. There's no such thing. It cannot exist, there's no way to kosher it. 
especially the way that he doesn't do what he what he says that he does. And even he himself, when Rabbi Yashiv Alava Shalom came out and said it's not allowed, it's forbidden to use wigs from India or from anywhere from idol worship, he himself says, no, I don't, I don't agree with Rabbi Yashif. I don't think that uh, the idol worshiping is a problem. Even if you get it from India, you can still use it. So if you don't think that it, they need to be koshered, how are you koshering it? How many kosher institutions are there for wigs? One, only him. I made, I made already enough uh, comments about the whole koshering thing. What am I telling? What's the chidush here? Summarizing everything to a point. How is this connected to Yochevet, to Elishava, to Dina, to, to, the, to the wife of, of Elazal? How is this connected? The main defendant, unfortunately, the main defendant of all of the wigs in the world right now, the main defendant of fighting for wigs right now, the main, unfortunately, the main defendant of it is Chabad. Chabad stands for Chokhmah Binabadat, three levels of, of wisdom. Unfortunately, today, after the Rebbe died, it stands for three other things. It stands for, you have to believe that the Rebbe is Mashiach, Stands for that everybody is a uh, captured baby. You're okay wherever you are. And stands for wigs. You go to Chabadniks and you tell them, listen, it's forbidden. Over 120 schemes said that it's not allowed. They say, no, no, Rabbi allowed it. You tell them it's forbidden. Is idol worship. All Puskim says it's not allowed, including the, 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 the Rebbe's. Of course the Rebbe would never say that idol worship was allowed. It's against the Torah. It was a Kadosh. It was Ish Kadosh. Not allowed idol worship. No, no, it's not idol worship. What do you mean? I told you it's idol worship. The idol worshiper himself made a video saying it's idol worship. I have people in India, in India, saying it's idol worship. We do idol worship. Yeah, sure. What's the problem? They, have nothing, they don't think there's anything wrong with it. But they're not embarrassed of their idol worship. They're proud of it. You know how many videos I have of, of people saying it's idol worship? While they're shaving their head. They're proud of it. Just like you're proud of putting feeling on your head. Just like your, your, your wife is proud of putting a scarf on the head. Just like you're proud of saying Shema Yisrael. Just like you're proud of eating kosher food. Just like you're proud of sending your kids to Yeshiva. They're proud of their idol worship. So they made many videos there. There's no problem. They actually look at you like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you, why don't you also play to the rats? And the bats, and the, and the snakes, and the, and the statues with the, uh, with the elephant head. Why, why don't you pray to them too? They don't know what's wrong with you. They don't realize what's wrong with, with them. So you tell the Chabad, no, no, it's idol worship. No, no, the Rebbe allowed it, the Rebbe allowed it. There's no way the Rebbe would be allowed. We'll, we'll, we'll make a mistake. What, is he God? And for the last couple of days, I've had this for months already, for the last two days I've been debating, Robert Freiman and I have been debating these several, several Chabad rabbis. Where they're literally, it started as, we just posted something about uh, some person had a dream that the Rebbe, Lubavitcher Rebbe, Allah Shalom, came to him in a dream, or came to her in a dream, and said, I never said that wigs are the wigs of today are allowed. They never said that I'm a Shia. Tell people to stop. Tell people to stop doing it. Stop saying that this is my name. I posted this in this of different groups. Immediately, these uh, first rabbi publicly insults me. Says you have to be an idiot to believe such a thing, and you're a fool, and you're this, and you're that. A lot of compliments. Thank you very much. 
Baruch Hashem. I need the Zechuyot in Shemaim. Thank you very much for helping me out. Fine. So then we started talking about, I said, well, wigs are not allowed. And like, no, but the Rebbe allowed, and we have other proofs, and we start going back and forth. So initially they provide five sources of Puskin. The sources it's all mistakes. Just don't know how to read these people. We provide them twenty-five sources, showing them that the five sources are wrong. They provide two or three more sources. We provide fifty more. Fifty more. So far, we're, we're outnumbering a little bit. Fifty more, not allowed. What do they do? They start cursing us out. Start insulting us. We continue for the Emet. There's proofs. Then we say even the Rebbe Lubavitcher Rebbe himself did not agree with what you're saying. Why? What the guy say? The rabbi, the Chabad rabbi, what does he say? He said, yeah, yeah, I just came back from uh, such and such town in Israel, and I was making sure to look at all of the women to make sure they're wearing wigs. <laughs> Wait, excuse me? What did you just say? That's what I said. What did you just say? Yeah, make sure to look. This is the writing. I can show it to you. It's in Hebrew, though, but I can show it to you. I'll make sure to look at all of the rabbis, at all of the women, to make sure they're wearing wigs. Why are you looking at your women? You sote. Why are you looking at other women? You don't know. You don't know. You're, supposed, you're obligated to watch your eyes. And then they start creating laws, and they start creating things in the name of the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, that was an Ish Kodesh. They start creating things. What they say? The Lubavitcher Rebbe refused to marry any couple if the woman did not agree to wear a wig. Are you stupid? Are you, are you, is something wrong with you? Where did you come up with such nonsense? We start providing them proofs that the Rebbe himself himself wrote letters for mitpachat, for the scarves. And this goes back and forth, back and forth, not so much them, it's more cursing, us, it's more proofs, nonetheless, we're trying to get to the emet. We're trying for shaman, we're figuring it's frustration, we're not taking anything personally, whatever, it is what it is. You get a little heated sometimes. Fine, you want to get heated. Fine, no problem. So then, Mama siyat dishmaya. Siyat dishmaya. After two days of arguing, I've been dealing with this wig thing for a couple of years already. Wrote a frame for even more. He wrote it in his books and so on. I have siyat dishmaya of a lifetime. I think to myself, all this debate. Pa, 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 pa. Who was the closest person to the Rebbe? Who is the closest person to any Ish Kodesh? Who? Of course, Rabbi is close, Chavuta is close, but aside from that, the Cheder Chadarim, inside the room, who? His wife. What did his wife do? His wife definitely didn't call him Mashiach, I can tell you that. But what did his wife do? Went on on some research. I found you some confirmations. I found you some confirmations. You can't say it's my opinion. Why? The source is Chabad. The source of everything I have right now is Chabad. It's not me. It's not, I, didn't, I, didn't, I, don't, I didn't go back 30 years in time to take these pictures. Chabad has several movies about the Rebetzin. She was a Ishak Dosha. She was Mamash in our generation when she lived. She died in the late 80s. The Rebetzin was Chaya Mushka Schneerson. 
was mamash isha kedusha. Unfortunately, they didn't have any kids. But when there was a lawsuit and they were looking at the estate, they were looking into the, the estate of Chabad and so on and so forth. They asked about the Rebbe and they asked about her, her father, which was the, uh, the uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe before the Rabbi Schneerson. And they uh, asked, her, oh, what does he have? What does he have? He goes, no, no. The Rebbe belongs to the Hasidim. Everything he has is for the Hasidim. Everything. There's no purse, our house, our car, our money, our bank. Everything is for the Hasidim. One little boy came to the Rebetzin. He says, Rebetzin, where are your kids? Little kid doesn't know Miskin what having kids is. Miskin doesn't know. Innocent, innocent. Mama's pure soul. What the Rebetzin, instead of crying like all of us want to cry right now for such a thing. What did she say? She says, all the Hasidim are his kids. All the Hasidim are our kids. Say Ishak Dosha. I want to know what Ishak Dosha in our generation did. If you're saying so many things about her husband, I love her shalom. I want to see what she did. She go with her husband, she go again to what she do. If she's a Kedusha, I want to be like her. Abutai, you don't need to listen to my words anymore. You can just see pictures. Here's the first picture. This is a very famous picture of the Rebbets and Snearson. You see that there is a little bit of hair and a hat. There's a little bit of hair and a hat. Now this is obviously, for anyone, any woman would tell you this is obviously her real hair. We showed this to the Chabad rabbis. They said, no, no, it's a wig. It's a wig. I said, okay, let's check another one. Let's check another picture. We have another picture. What about this one? It's another hat. This is a wig too? From 80 years ago? It's a wig? Oh no, it's a wig. It's a wig. Hashem, Hashem have mercy on you, tells me. Hashem have mercy on you for calling, for thinking this is not a wig. Hashem have mercy on you. I said, okay, fine, no problem. No problem, this is a wig. This is her, by the way. I said, okay, no problem. Let's see, next, next sex picture. Here she is, over here. Same picture as the other one, just the original picture. This is a wig? Oh no, it's a wig, I shouldn't have mercy on you that says it's a wig. I said, okay, no problem, fine, no problem. We have wigs, we have a lot of wigs. We have a lot of different types of wigs. Then you have the movie. The movie, uh, called the... Um, Life and Times of the Rebetzin. Life and Times of the Rebetzin. The brief biography of Rebetzin Chaya Mushka Schneerson. It shows several pictures of her. Some of that I showed you, some that aren't. This is one of them. This is one of them. And you see that there, this is her. You see that there's hair here in the back. And there's a hat. There's a hat. Okay? And, okay, let's say this is also, I made it up, I don't know, somehow, or whatever it is. Fine, no problem. Now, oh, so, so you know, the Allah is that you are allowed to show, according to Allah, you are allowed to show up to three fingerfuls of hair. Up to three fingerfuls of hair you are allowed to show, front or back or so on. Chabad claims, today's Chabad, not Lubavitcher Rebbe, today's people claim, no, no, we hold by the Zohar who says you're not allowed to show even a single hair. Not even allowed to show. That's why the wig is better, according to them. And to actually wear a mitpachat is a sin, according to these rabbis that I had a debate with. It's a sin. If that's a sin, what's a mitzvah? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I said, that's why. So I said, okay, so what about the Rebetzin? She's showing some hair. No, that's a wig. That's a wig. Okay, fine. It's a wig. So let's just go fast forward. And we go to 1985, just a couple of years before she died. And we see what the Rebetzin is wearing next to a, a man that's not her husband. This is actually a picture that was taken when they were questioning her to some type of uh, financial issues, some type of lawsuit. 
And you see, you can't see in the back digitally, but over here she's actually wearing a kisui rosh. She's wearing a, uh, some type of uh, cover on her hair. And the front is showing. About three fingerfuls, or even a little bit more, three fingerfuls is showing. Next to a strange man, obviously a cameraman. So obviously she's, this is not a picture that somebody got behind the scenes and she didn't know, because if she knows that there's people out there, she's tzadika, she has to cover her hair. Now, if case this was not convincing, let's go. there's another version of the picture. Now she looks and you can see clearly that she has something covering her hair. And a little bit is not covered in the front, next to the same strange man, whoever this tzaddik is, 1985, gives you the date and everything. And if that wasn't enough, I told them all, this, what about this? Like, no, no, it's a wig. I'm like, what a wig? An old woman is going to get white hair wig? And he said, no, no, it's not, a, it's not, if it's not, that's only because she's home. So she doesn't have to cover her hair. I'm like, what do you mean she doesn't have to cover her hair? There's strange people next to her, not her husband. Did you just create a new law? He said, don't make fun of me. This is what he's responsible. Don't make fun of me. So then we have another picture of the Rebetzin of her in a car. This is a, somebody took, she was in a car. And actually you can't see it here, but she's actually wearing the same exact kisugos as before. And the front is showing, but she's in a car. So you can't use that excuse of she was home and she didn't know and she doesn't have to. Meaning every single argument you have is going to the garbage. She wore kisugos. And last but not least is another one where she covered her hair. Here she doesn't have much showing at all. Uh, she covered our entire hair. Here's a black and white picture. So now you have Ishak Dosha that dedicated her life to Chabad, dedicated her life to her husband, dedicated her life to Hashemik Barach. What did she do? She put a mitpachat on. Now, if that wasn't enough, I figured, I already have said Ishmael, let's go all the way. Hashem, what did his mother do? <laughs> Guy's not going to go against his mother. You know, his mother was Tzadikah Kdosha. What's the story about his mother? His father was a huge, huge Tamit Chacham. One day, the, the communists wanted to kill them. Wanted to kill them nonstop. But the father, his father, I remember this story from years ago. His father used to write Chidushim on the corners of the Gemara pages. Because they didn't have money for didn't have money for uh, for paper. Very, you know how expensive paper was back then. Like today, you buy uh, five hundred pieces of paper for two dollars. Back then, you have five hundred pieces of paper. You're already rich. So the people used to write chidushim on the corners. You know, between you know, you have the book, you have the book, and then you have a little bit of uh, white space on it. A little white space. That's where they write the chidushim on the corners over here. So she took all of these chidushim, all of the books, instead of clothes, instead of food, instead of money, she took all of his chidushim and she took it out of the country to save the books. She put her life on her line. No money, no clothes, no nothing. She just took his books. Why? The world must see his chidushim. This is how much she loved Torah. This is anashim ktushim. It's not regular women. It's no different than the, in that generation. No different than Yochevet and any Sheva. It's no different. What did she do? Rebetzin Schneerson. Chana Schneerson. Look at this. Nice hat. Look at this. Another hat. Some hair showing on the side. But you have the hat. More hair showing than the Rebetzin, other one. But nonetheless, there's a hair covering, which we'll explain in a moment. 
Another one. These are all the pictures that are available. There are no more pictures. You want to go find one, send it to me. But I, don't, I didn't find it. I did a lot of research, Baruch Hashem. Covering more. This is a meeting, first meeting she had with the Rebbe himself. She hasn't seen him in almost 20 years. Meeting with all the rabbis and the Rebbe. Rebbe here, as you can see, is very young. This is the Rebbe, his mother. The hat looks like a streimel. She covers everything. Huge. And again, another meeting. Over here, another black and white picture. This is the Rebbe here. This is the Rebbe. Again, a huge hat. And if you want to read, you should read the story, The Life and Times of the Rebetzin, Chaya Mushka Schneerson. It's actually on Chabad's website. It's actually on Rebbe.org or something like that. Very, very good article. Also has many of the same pictures that I just showed you uh, and others. Uh, not others. And uh, what's it called? Just in, in the article. Now, what's the point? The point is, I will tell you a few things. Number one, even if you want to say, which is a lie, even if you want to say they wore both of them, both of these tzaddikot kedushot wore a wig. Let's say they did. They didn't. But let's say they did. What kind, what kind of wig did they, did they wear? What did they wear? They wore exactly what the Gemara says. Exactly what Rashi says. They wore the wig under the hat. Okay, I wore the wig. White wig. Okay, fine. Never really existed. Why? No, no problem. I wore the wig under the hat though. Not a wig by itself. Not a wig by itself. Covered my hair, obligated. No problem. But just like Rashi says, just like the Gemara says, just like the Mishnah says, no three feet long wig reached the floor, not even a short wig. Nothing. Why? It's not allowed. It's Pashut not allowed. It's Pashut not allowed. So even if it was a wig, you see it's covered by a hat. In reality, it wasn't a wig. But you want to believe it's a wig? Fine. Okay. If you're holding by the Lubavitcher Rebbe, you want to hold by him to wear a wig? No problem. At least hold by what he actually did. Don't hold by something you created out of your thin mind of what you say he did. Hold by what his wife did. Hold by what his mother did. No problem. But don't go out and pretend like you're covering your hair, like the Baba Sali says, he says, these women, they, they're, 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 they're pretending like they could fool God. They're pretending like they could fool God by fulfilling the obligation of covering hair with hair. They're pretending to fulfill the obligation. You think you can fool Hashem? It's nonsense. It's nonsense, Rabotai. You have to understand, to be a Yishak Dosha is not easy. It's not easy. It's not easy. To bring Amisa to a point where Hashem will save us out of the tumah of the world, out of the impurity of the world of Egypt, it's not easy. You fast forward 3,300 years, we're in the same situation. For any woman to do serious tshuva and stop with the nonsense, it's not easy. But at least don't lie about it. Don't pretend like you're finished with your tshuva. Don't pretend. We have all a lot to do. We all have a lot to do, but knowing the truth is half the battle. Knowing the truth is half the battle. That's how we can do tshuva. You want to hold by Rebbe? No problem. Do what he did. You want to hold by Rabbi Vadya? Do what he did. 
Whatever you, whatever you want to hold, do what they do. Don't start creating new rules in someone's name that died and you can't ask them now. The best part is they said, no, Rav Kanievsky said it's allowed. I said, no way, he didn't say it's allowed. I have a video of him saying it's not allowed. A video. Right now, he just made it a few months ago, a couple years ago. Hey, man, a video of him saying it's not allowed. They showed him a 15-year-old wig, meaning it's a wig that's been beat up. He says, this looks like real hair. It's not allowed. Now, why would they insist so much in this? Why they insist that it's allowed? Because the guys don't know how to watch their eyes. That's the truth. The guys don't know how to watch their eyes. They want to be like Goim. They want their wives to look like Goim. They want to make the same mistakes Dina made in the parasha. Dina made a mistake. She wanted to see. She didn't want to be like the Goim. She wanted to see. The guys today, they want to see what the Goim look like. Oh, look, they have long hair. I want long hair. That's the truth. That's the hard truth. That's what they're going to try to hang me on. That's what they're going to try to fight me with. It's no problem. I'm for God. Whoever wants to fight, good luck. Or maybe they own interest. Whatever it, of course, is interest is money. But in reality, it's eyes. In reality, it's eyes. Yeah, of course, there's money. Yes, of course. At the end of the day, to do tshuva for such a thing, don't take it for granted. It's very difficult. Why is it very difficult for all of them to do tshuva? Just like Rav Sadia Gaon said. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the embarrassment is so big, I'd rather the person die than me go visit them in hospital. Sometimes it's so hard for them to do tshuva, they'd rather die, themselves even, mm. than, than put a uh, kisu roshan. But that's the difference between a tzaddik and a rasha. That's the difference between a tzaddiket and a rashait. You want to bring the Mashiach for real? You will say, Mashiach, Mashiach, Mashiach. You say, want to bring the Mashiach? Okay, bring the Mashiach. Do tshuva. Do tshuva. It's not easy. It's not easy. But you can do it. If you couldn't do it, Hashem would have never given you, would have never given you this test. And that's what we'll finish with. The Pele Yoetz, Allah Shalom, says, in Chesed Alafim, nearly all of a woman's reward and punishment in this world and the world to come. All the reward, all of the punishment comes and is dependent on her modesty. It's the Pele Yoeh, it's not me. You have a problem, go to him. He's in Olam Abba right now with the rest of Chachamim, Rabbi Akiva. You have a problem, go to him. That's the truth. At least we know where we stand. It's nothing chas v'shalom against Chabad. It's nothing chas v'shalom against anyone. It's only against lies. It's only against lies. There's many Chabadniks that I say stories on in the Shurim that are Kodesh Kodeshim, whether it's Rab Zilber or the Rogochover and many others. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe himself. But enough's enough. Stop desecrating Hashem's name. Stop desecrating even your own Rebbe's name. Saying things in his name. Come on, no, enough. Enough. Let Am Yisrael do tshuva. We all need to do tshuva. That's what the Rambam says, which Chabad teaches. They have a uh, way, a structured study for, 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 for a Rambam, where they finish the Rambam mm. each year, I believe. And Mamash, it's, it's, there's a sedel, they, they hold by it. So, okay, hold by everything he says. Hold by everything he says. Don't just pick and choose. We're not Christians. Mm. Hashem, this will shock enough people into tshuva. Not into war with me. It's not me. It has nothing to do with me. If one thing that I said is a lie, prove it.
one thing that I said is a lie, prove it. If one thing that I said has a bias, that I have some personal interest, prove it. If you can prove it, I'll admit it openly. I'll make a bigger lecture about it. I'll make a bigger lecture about it. I have no problem. It's not, it's not, no, no benefit. If I, if I may said something wrong, if I said some mistake, I'll admit it. If I have a, a, some vested interest in it, I'll admit it. But the onus is on Ami Slayer, the onus is on everyone. Face reality. Okay, this is where you stand, now what? You want Hashem to answer your prayers? Now what? It's time to do tshuva, Rabotai. It's time to do tshuva. It's, listen, we learned from Parashat Vayera, and we're going to learn next week Parashat Bo. Hashem put the plagues on in order to show us the measure for measure punishment against the wicked. Chas v'shalom for us to be judged as the wicked. Chas v'shalom. We want to be the righteous. They're in between the lines. We want to be like Yochevet. We want to be like Elisheva. We want to be even like Dina. We want to be. Alvaya is one of them. Alvai. We don't want to be like Paul. We have to, we have to stop sinning. Just like it said at the end of the parasha, even though after Hashem rebuked him so many times, seven times he beat him on the head so far, and Paul continued to sin. Chas v'shalom, we continue to sin. Chas v'shalom, we continue to sin and think that what we're doing is a mitzvah.